double to start the new World Superbike season. Proof that we don't know shit. Nope. With that said, enjoy another two hours of insightful analysis on Bike Life. Yeah, it's a warm welcome to episode 48 of Bike Live as we review the opening round of the World Superbike Championship of 2018. Oh, how good it is to have World Superbikes back. And it returned with a bang last weekend in Australia with a shock double um, for Marco Malandri and Ducati bringing Johnny Ray and Kawasaki's dominant streak to an end for now um, in World Superbikes. We'll talk about how they did it. Um, with two very different races, one uh, tense race in race one and an absolute clusterfuck in race two, uh, which included a mandatory pit stop midway through. Um, we'll talk about all of the issues that led to that as well as Pirelli came under fire, including uh, a weekend where Pirelli fired some shots back uh, in the directions of many of the riders. Um, we'll talk about Tom Sykes' start to the season as he got the better of Jonathan Ray for the first time, arguably, since they were teammates. Um, we'll talk about Chaz Davis's weekend as he found himself outshunned by another rider on satellite Ducati equipment. Um, a disappointing start for Yamaha and Aprilia, although the latter of those will be looking back on what might have been. Uh, and we'll also cover the action in World Super Sport as the reigning champion made the perfect start. The former champion starting this year, much how he finished last year. Uh, more on that when we get to the middleweight class. Uh, we'll also talk about all the big notes, MotoGP news that's broken since we last spoke, and there has been a lot of it, um, as the teams tested in Thailand for the first time. Tech3 finally secured their replacement for Jonas Folger, whilst also announcing the split of their current manufacturer. And we'll also talk about two riders who have signed their spots on the grid for next year, uh, one being the reigning champion, Mark Marquez, and the other being a rookie who may well head there as a Moto2 champion. More on that over the course of the next two hours. Um, joining me to look back um, on episode... on or Joining me for episode 48 as we look back on the World Superbike season opener. Um, still kind of recovering from what was a stunning weekend of Superbikes. It's Andre Harrison. Welcome, Dre. What the hell just happened? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I had to watch it again this afternoon to refresh myself. And I was just like, did that really happen? It did. It did. Um, also, no, we're only recording this on Thursday, March 3rd, because they cancelled the fucking darts. Yep. <laughs> like, great, great, us, us British folk, let it be known. If you're like an American listening to this, this country grinds to a halt whenever it gets more than three inches of snow. Um, so so thanks a bunch, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, Exeter's, uh, the, uh, the arena in Exeter was uh, out of commission for the darts season so yeah we decided you know what should we just record it tonight um yeah why not yeah it's not like well we could watch manchester city destroy arsenal but we just saw that movie four days ago um by, by the way they are destroying them again um but we uh yeah we decided not to bother uh, and record a podcast instead um, which means you get this earlier than you would have done um yes. in the weekend um so uh, yeah you should be thanking us for that really um places you can find us um speaking of early access you can find us on patreon and back back us to earn yourself early access to each of our weekly shows do so at patreon.com um forward slash motorsport 101 more on that in a second before that though you can find us on facebook facebook.com forward slash motorsport 101 on twitter we are at motorsport underscore 101 uh, at harrison 101 hd and at lewis 23 if you want to follow us individually um our youtube channel is youtube.com forward slash motorsport 101 our website is motorsport 101.net um and as i say if you want to back us financially and yourself early access to both of our weekly shows and they will both be weekly very very soon um, motorsport 101 mm -hmm. and bike live uh, head to patreon.com forward slash motorsport 101 on that note dre um episode one two three i believe it is um of motorsport 101 um 
is is live right now. If you haven't uh, listened to it, 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 it kind of went up just after our bike live double of last weekend. So you can still find that um, by heading to all Indeed. of the podcast channels. Um, but we return next week for um, an IndyCar season preview, as well as um, Dre's um, desperate attempts to curb his excitement at Formula One testing uh, next week. We're not doing this again, Lewis. We, we, we're not. Like, like after the last year's hype train, where Vela went down from like fourteen to one to like, like to like something like seventy two to win the title. I am officially off this wagon. There will be no narcotics in this corner of the room. Okay, let me make that clear. Episode one twenty three went up this past Sunday, um, where we joke about the Winter Olympics because that's always fun. Um, sadly, no restraining order for Adam Johnson this in this this time around. But um, someone has to comfort Ryan King because Michaela Schifrin didn't have a particularly great haul. Um, so that's that's always fun. And we talk about the Daytona five hundred as Austin Dillon may or may not have rammed somebody off the road to win a big race. And uh, we have a new favorite NASCAR driver in Bubba Wallace Jr. because that was that was fun um, as he finished. Second second just over just over denny hamlin with the sickest post-race burn i think i've ever heard where he goes he goes to the to, to um his post-race press conference and says to about denny hamlin's incident oh he's gonna need he's gonna need an adderall for that one which i thought was hilarious <laughs> um <laughs> so um that was fun but yeah i am 99 percent sure that uh it's going to be a double episode next week and it's going to be absolutely stacked going back to weekly shows again um, basically, um, we'll have Formula E in Mexico City this past weekend reviewing that. There's a very strong chance we'll be able to poach Hazel in on Skype in Mexico itself, which would be pretty great. Um, and on top of that, our IndyCar season preview for 2018. Can Joseph Newgarden retain the title? Will Penske curb stomp everybody again? Probably. But, um, you know, we'll have to wait and see how that one plays out. Obviously, you know, Dixon and the, and the smaller Chip Ganassi team. Has Andretti found an ace in Alexander Rossi? Again, probably. Um, so all of that and inevitably much, much more on Motorsport 101 next week. Again, I'm 95% sure it will be a double episode. So look forward to that. Yeah, it's going to be a, a cracking week next week. Because just to mark your card for next week as well. Next week's edition of Bike Live, episode 49. Um, will be our big bumper team by team MotoGP season preview. Um, so uh, we're already looking forward to that. Um, that show, by the way, will also include a roundup on what happens in the Qatar test, which started today. Um, as mm-hmm. we record this, uh, Maverick Vinales kind of doing what he did last year, and that's topping the testing in Qatar. Um, but we'll talk about the Thailand test and everything that's going on in MotoGP at the moment um, later on in the show. But let's start with what happened in Phillip Island last weekend and the perfect place to start a world superbike season it proved it once again um, another brilliant weekend um, now if we'll go through it chronologically it started as many world superbike weekends start with a tom sykes pole position um although this one came with a little bit of history attached to it a record equaling 43rd career pole position for tom sykes which moves him dead level now with troy corsa um as the most prolific pole man in world superbike history so one more in thailand potentially and tom sykes will be the greatest super pole rider of them all um, in world superbike history. Um, but immediately, Dre, when I started watching race one, as it unfolded in the early app, straight away, I was looking at Sykes and the guy that was chasing him and thinking, this is all a bit different. I know, right? It, 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 didn't, it didn't quite feel the same. Um, like, shout out to Troy Coulter as well for getting on video and congratulating Tom Sykes through gritted teeth yes. um, for, for, for tying his pole position record. So um, props to Coulter for me. I know being an Aussie, that, that probably hurt him deep in the soul. 
But um, yeah, it was a little bit all over the place right from the start. Like I, mean, I remember Lorenzo Savadori as well being the fastest man out there, mm. heading into heading into the Super Bowl itself. Jonathan Ray had a, had an accident in practice, um, as as well as the test itself, and there was potential talk of rain. Um, so it it all felt not quite like a usual Philip Island weekend going into the you know, the business end of the weekend itself, but. Uh, Tom Sykes ended up on pole, so I guess it wasn't all that far-fetched in the end, was it? Yeah, well, he, he put it on pole, but he started to sort of ease away early on in race one. Um, around, so what's going on there? Yeah, exactly, around a circuit that he's made no secret of the fact doesn't suit him. Um, for a guy who's very very good at heavy braking and acceleration, which Philip Island doesn't have an awful lot of um, around the circuit. Um, but yeah, he was, he was a second and a half clear after a couple of laps in race one. Um, which is mm-hmm. astonishing. And many riders picked up on this, that they were expecting a very slow pace um, in race one because of all the concerns over tyre wear. More on that in a moment. Um, so they were expecting a kind of slow pace as everyone knows their tyres. But Sykes gunned it um, right from the start and basically split the field up um, as, right. as riders were faced with the decision of do you do we try and keep pace with him and stop him getting away or do we just sit back and nurse our tyres through? Um, Melandry in the end and Ray gave chase uh, and pulled him back about midway through um, that first race. But um, with Ray hitting problems, he had a blistered tyre. It was only Melandry in the end that was able to give chase um, to Tom Sykes, which led to a battle for victory between the two number two riders, essentially, of last year at Kawasaki and Ducati, who, who had watched Davies and Ray um, lead them um, through most of the races last year. And in the end, Tom Sykes was kind of bracing himself and building himself up to make a real defence of that race lead, but the uh, Ducati was so much of a missile that he ended up having a defence. Yeah, it's it, it was like resistance was futile in this case. Uh, Marco Melandri had a rocket ship of a bike um, on on this occasion, just so fast in a straight line. And you know, when you're that much quicker on, on, a, on a ridiculously fast track like yeah, Philip right Island, into a mega headwind. Um, <laughs> In, indeed, like you had no chance on that one. Marco Melandri um, winning the duel with Tom Sykes in the end to take his second comeback victory. Um, remember that. It becomes important later. <laughs> yeah, it does. And uh, an, an extraordinary start uh, to the season. I don't think anyone predicted. I th- well, we already said going into the season that Ducati were expected to struggle um, related <laughs> to how they went last season. They were expected to suffer more than most due to the regulation changes. Um, and even if Ducati were in a position to compete for victories, we were kind of expecting it to be Davies that did it, um, rather than Melandri. Um, but a, a virtuoso performance. Being race two, we can take a, a lot less from because it was so, so chaotic, so manic. Um, right. But race one was a, flare, a fair and square, on pure pace, brilliant Melandri victory. And it, it kind of reminds us, if we need a reminding, um, just how good this guy can be when he's got a bike that suits him absolutely like let's not forget this is a guy that was a multiple time race winner in pretty much every world superbike season he had a competitive bike with um he was always capable of four to five wins a season and yeah he like he, he, he it's easy to forget he dominated in masano last year and got a win there um and has been the improvement to Ducati that the factory sort of needed after davide giuliano's inconsistencies kept cropping up um but yeah, Marco Melandri, like he's still an absolute class rider. He's always had a soft spot for Philip Island. Um, yeah, and, well, I think we were all know. a little gutted that we didn't see the burnout out of the final quarter. How dare he? <laughs> still the coolest celebration ever. 
I demand that comes back at some point. Uh, maybe he needs a, a, bit, a bit of space in front, of, in front of the other bikes before he does that. Mind you. But, um, yeah, still, again, Matt Marco is still a class rider, and he's still more than capable of winning in, the, in this field. And when you've got a bike that... I mean, it's, it's funny as well, because we spent a lot of this preview time basically kind of playing down Ducati going into the season, thinking, you know, hey, maybe they'll focus on 2019 with their... You know, their V4 Panagale um, basically being slowly getting there now, being race ready for, for next season. Um, and they might, they might, I mean, even Greg Haynes said that they were thinking about when they're when they going to pull the plug on developing their, their current Panagale. But hey, you know, a double victory to start the season and Melandru leading the championship, it might delay that uh, that pull that, that plug being pulled for a little bit longer um, because yeah, that was a fantastic double victory for Marco Melandri and that was as good as he's looked in multiple bikes for three or four years. Yeah, and I think, yeah, Ducati had had, because there's, there's a, a V-twin, they'd had more revs locked off. I think they'd had 700 RPM um, locked off their bike um, ahead of this year, um, which, which is incredible. So they were running a lot sort of lot sort of weaker on outright revs than, than last year, but they obviously made their bike stronger in other areas. I mean, Johnny Ray was noticing in race two that um, Ducati just had the better chassis uh, in that second race. Their bike was just turning a lot better than the Kawasaki was um, in mm-hmm. race two, and that's where they were really um, making uh, their time up. And obviously, the Ducati was getting onto the main straight and getting down the main straight a lot quicker than the Kawasaki was as well, which really helps when you're in a group fight like that, if you can just out-drag out people without really the need of a slipstream. Um, right. in that race um, so Melandry the race one win it from Sykes now that's where the, the fun kind of starts for the weekend because Johnny Ray was running third um, for a lot of mm-hmm. that, that first race then was unable to give chase um, to the front two as he just collapsed down the order back to fifth in race one with a blistered rear tyre um, now Phillip Island is notoriously tough on tyres we've seen MotoGP races run flag to flag before because of tyre concerns we've seen Moto2 and 3 races shortened because of tyre fears as well Um, and we ended up with a very very similar scenario in this one with Ray suffering problems, Yoni Hernandez suffered a flat tyre which flung him from his bike on his World Superbike debut in race 1 which is why he didn't finish that one Um, we saw a number of crashes in World Super Sport that were also down to deflated tyres. They also run Pirellis, by the way, much like Superbike. Um, Mm -hmm. We saw Michael van der Mark plummet down the order late in race one due to problems. We saw Torres suffer a flat rear tyre, which caused him to DNF that first race when he was running um, in the points with a couple of laps to go. Um, And it forced World Superbikes to make a decision. They decided, much like MotoGP five years prior, to bring in flag-to-flag rules. Um, breaking, keeping the distance at 22 laps but installing a 12 lap limit on tyre use or use of a rear tyre which meant that at the end of laps 10, 11 or 12 they had to change tyres um, so essentially a World Superbike race with a mid-race mandatory pit stop um, now before we talk about that race itself which was absolutely brilliant um, largely due to the tyre changes but also without it it was still a brilliant race um, mm-hmm. but let's talk about the circumstances that led up to it Dre um, first of all from Dorna and World Superbike's point of view much like in MotoGP a few years prior do they deserve a lot of credit just for making sure we got a race in race 2 they, 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 had, they had to do what they had to do I mean like I said a lot of people would have argued against it I know some of the riders um, especially those at the front of race 1 of course they're going to argue against it because they, they won in a format where other guys were, were having difficulties they and competitive no of course, like, speaking, they're not going to want a flag to flag, which brings other people into play. However, 
One look at Yoni Hernandez's tyre exploding in race one at the rear said to me, this isn't safe. Um, so, yeah, I, I completely understand um, why um, World Superbikes did what they did and hey, having a flag-to-flag race. I mean, I, do, I would not want to risk another rear tyre explosion like that um, You know, going into race two. So I think... I think they made the right decision, and we still got a really entertaining race as a result, so who can really complain about it? I mean, the fans got what they paid for at the end of the day. Mm, yeah, the blame has been apportioned on both sides of this, and um, let's let's look at both sides of it. First of all, Pirelli, they are the tyre suppliers, so inevitably they are going to be the ones that everyone looks at when tyres are failing. Um, and it has to be said, as much as we can defend Pirelli, and as much as there are mitigating factors here, it shouldn't have been a surprise to them that Philip Island choose tyres, should it? Yeah, like this, this is not a surprising thing. We saw it in MotoGP in 2013 with a flag to flag there. We saw how it had a very negative impact on Scott Redding's championship campaign in Moto2 because the new layout caused him to have a massive crash that he never really recovered from that season. Um, so we've seen it before in MotoGP that this, 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 this track is a tire breaker. You know, it's so high speed, a lot of pressure on sides of the tire and how the air is distributed out it, it, it chews tires up and spits them out so like I'm, I'm i'm stunned that we were still having conversations about this because anyone with half a brain cell will tell you that philip island is a tire wrecker <laughs> it is um now pirelli um inevitably were keen to put their case forward because we did see riders um, particularly in the super sport class when shown on camera over the weekend were sort of giving the thumbs down and pointing to the pirelli stickers on their leathers um, which was a very clear message as to what they felt about the whole situation. Um, now, as far as the super bike class is concerned, um, Pirelli have been pushing very, very hard in, in recent years for spot checks on the grid, um, for tyre pressures, something that's been a very sore subject in Formula 1 um, in recent yeah. years, where Pirelli, and ironically, are also the tyre suppliers. Um, but, um, yeah, they've been after spot checks because unlike MotoGP, there are no tyre pressure sensors on the bikes. Um, and there are no tyre pressure sensors on the cars like they are in F1. Um, mm-hmm. So the only way they can check tyre pressures is when the bike is stationary in pit lane or on the grid. Um, now, Pirelli did spot checks, six of them, uh, three before race one, three before race two, with six different makes of motorcycle, um, and they found in their spot checks, Dre, that three of them, half of the bikes they checked, were running under the recommended pressures of 1.8 bar, um, which is not a good... I mean, it's not illegal, um, but it's going against recommendation by Pirelli. Um, right. And you can kind of understand in that context why Pirelli are a little concerned when they're getting blamed for tyres failing, when they're essentially seeing teams and riders defying their own recommendations on pressures. Exactly. And like as you say, it's not illegal, but of course... This is sports, and in sports, teams will bend any and any. I mean, will bend anything they can to get a competitive advantage. Running, running smaller tire pressures, running lower tire pressures gives you more contact patch on the ground. Um, it, it gives you more grip, but it will also chew your tires out faster. Um, so, yeah, teams clearly gambled on this, and they've been given the advisory limits, um, and they're going to ignore them because they think they know better until they blow up, yeah. and then you know, they, they find a way to blame Pirelli on it. Like it's their fault for making bad tires when Pirelli said, well, listen, you probably shouldn't be running them below this so much PSI, and yet they don't. So, like, it, it's your own fault, really, for taking liberties. Um I think it probably does need to be a hard and fast rule because, I mean, ultimately, I think you've got to try and save the teams from themselves. I mean, if 
I mean, if if you're running a tire that's, for example, let's just pluck a name out of thin air. Let's say Chaz Davis, for example. If he's running on a bike that has a, a, a tire pressure that is below what Peretti recommends, and then he crashes, um, and then Ducati blame Pirelli when it was their fault all along, that's not right. And you're, you're ultimately risking your rider's health. Because I believe and, in Formula uh, 1 it now is a rule, isn't it? It is a hard and fast rule now. It came up in, at Monza last, I think, a couple of years ago when uh, Lewis Hamilton had dodgy tire pressures and or Nico Rosberg had had a had a, a, a second place taken away from him for having illegal tire pressures, which led to the hilarious joke at Japan the following weekend with uh, Seb and the prickles going, "Where you low again?" Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Rosberg was having none of it. But um, yeah, it's, it's 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 the same deal. I mean, like if you like teams need to be saved from themselves on this one because they are going to take the piss on rules like this, unfortunately. And then, you know, if a rider falls off and injures himself as a result of having low tires, like you saw with Yoni Hernandez this weekend, when what, what the hell do we do then? Like, there'll be a lot of finger pointing, and, you know, someone could have potentially saved his injury. If, you know, but so for me, have it be a hard and fast rule and have a minimum tire pressure and just stop these controversial politics and finger pointing because it's ridiculous like teams should not be blaming the tire supplier and vice versa when they are and there's underhanded tactics being used yeah the reason pirelli do not have or the reason there aren't tire pressure sensors on the bikes in world superbikes is purely a, a decision made on cost grounds um that it would it would cost a lot more to basically to employ more people and have um you know, the tire pressure sensors and Pirelli have been pushing hard, of course, for these spot checks. I think they should also just literally have every bike um, send a, send two or three Pirelli technicians onto the grid before each race and have them each check uh, a third of the field for their tire pressures before the race starts. I mean, we we have a Pirelli, or we have a, a marshal in Super Bowl, don't we? Every Super Bowl session, we have a marshal at the end of pit lane checking the stickers on the bikes, um, right? Because you're only allowed to run a qualifying tire in Super Bowl too. Um, so we have Eight. we have marshals checking bikes as they leave pit lane to make sure that they're running the right tires. Um, so mm. it can be done, um, but there's another sort of side to this. As Dre mentioned a moment ago, the three podium finishes from race one, Melandry, Sykes, and Davies were all in agreement that they didn't feel a flag to flag race in race two was necessary. Um, now. We saw three key riders having issues in that first race. Jonathan Ray, who had a blistered rear tyre. Um, Michael Vandermark, who plummeted from 6th down to ninth in the end of the, f- of the first race. And Jordi Torres had a flat rear tyre and had to retire, as I mentioned earlier on. Um, and one unnamed uh, race uh, crew chief in the paddock did say after race one, um, or he cheekily pointed out, that um, this wasn't the first time that those three riders had all hit tyre trouble, referencing Donington and Mizano last year. Um, where those same three riders, particularly at Mizano, all had tyre problems, um, which caused them to either crash out of races or drop down the field. Um, and it is a fair point worth making, Dre, that it's not just failure, it's not just poor pressures or poor tyres that can make a tyre fail to last a race. Riding, sure. riding style can make one fail to last. Bike setup um, can make one fail to last. Um, and quite rightly, it's, it's the Indianapolis 2005 argument, isn't it, where Bridgestone back then were quite rightly saying, and from a sporting point of view, you can totally understand their point of view then, that, hey, why should we have to suffer on the grand scheme of things because Michelin have fucked up? Um, and you know, Bridgestone did nothing wrong that time in terms of their tyres they brought to the event and ended up having a, 
a complete monopoly of the race as a result. Um, but it wasn't good for the sport. The overall situation wasn't good for the sport. Um, and Pereira, Johnny Ray's crew chief, said after race one that no matter what setup or riding style was being employed on a bike, it, no rear tyre should be blistering in the way that Johnny Ray's rear tyre was blistering. Um, so mm. at the end of the day, the World Superbike Commission and Dawn and Race Direction basically had to make a decision for the good of the sport, even if it was going to piss off two or three riders who'd got it right initially. Indeed. Um, common sense prevailed here, I think, is is the way we're going about this. And like I said, Yoni Hernandez had an enormous crash, and that was early on in the race, and his rear tyre looked like somebody had put it through a cheese grater. Um, Jonathan Ray, as mentioned, was having severe blistering on his rear tyre. Jordi Torres had, had a flat tyre at the end of the race. Um, that that's not an these are not isolated incidents. This was a significant portion of the grid having severe competitive drop-offs because their tires weren't working properly. Now, of course, if you're Marco Melandri, Tom Sykes, Chaz Davis, etc., and you've directly benefited from this situation, of course you're not going to want to flag the flag race. It compromises your chances of winning again. And as you said, it's the exact same deal as Indianapolis 05 in Formula 1, where nine of the ten teams agreed to, to postpone the race or make it non-championship because of because of the tyre situation that was going on over there with Michelin. Who was the one team who disagreed? Ferrari. Who were, gonna get, who, who were get, pretty much guaranteed a one-two finish if the race actually went ahead. Um, even Jordan and Minardi, who took place in the race, was willing to sacrifice guaranteed points to say, for the greater good, let's not let's not score points in this scenario. And um, Ferrari were like, fuck that. <laughs> Basically... 18 free points were taking these and we're going home. Um, but um, yeah, it's the exact same scenario here. You're never going to please everybody in this sort of scenario. It's never ideal. Um, <laughs> so I think Dorna and multiple bikes made the right decision here. I think you've got to err on the side of caution, especially on a track as dangerous as Phillip Island, um, where one rider had already pulled out for injury like Savadori did. How Hernandez had a very big near miss. In, in race one and these these incidents kept cropping up um with the reputation of philip island preceding it i think they made the right decision to have a flag to flag race and as i said it didn't hurt the entertainment of the factor at all one bit um and it, it i don't think it really hurt the guys that were complaining about it all that much marco malandri still won mm. you know Chaz Davis was still competitive, like Tom Sykes, you know, still finished fourth, um, you know, and on a track that, again, he has always said he, he is disliked. So, you know, I don't think this was, this would have been all that much. I just think they were trying to, you know, put some words in there for the sake of, of, sake of competitive balance. But, um, yeah, I just, I still think uh, it's, it, it, it's one of those things where, of course, they're going to, because of course they're going to make comments about uh, about you know trying to trying to help things for themselves basically, but uh, play the competitive yeah. advantage. Yeah, exactly. And, and one of the questions that was leveled at Pirelli was, "Hey, why don't you just bring harder tires um, to to Philip Island?" And Pirelli were quick to sort of counter that by saying, "Oh, well, hey, we could bring much harder tires, but that doesn't necessarily mean the tires will last longer because the harder the tires are, the less grip you're going to have, um, and, exactly. and you're just going to slide around and wear them out anyway." So, so yeah, there's there are decisions that need to be made in future with what. Pirelli bring to Phillip Island and perhaps Phillip Island have questions to answer perhaps that circuit needs relaying and um, we've seen other circuits um, if you've been listening to Lewis Hamilton today um, that have been relayed and perhaps are offering um, slightly more grip and slightly uh, less sliding now that um, 
are not killing tires as much as they did in the past, which doesn't seem to be possible oh, no. either. Um, yeah, oh no, if you're Lewis Hamilton. It's making it too easy. Uh, but that's another topic for another show. Um, as Dre mentioned, the uh, flag-to-flag uh, implementation of Race 2 and the mandatory pit stops midway through did not uh, affect the product at all. Um, we still had an absolutely thrilling Race 2. In fact, Dre, it was an absolutely crazy uh, Race 2 um, that... MCN described as one of the most exciting World Superbike races in many, many years. Would you go with that? It's in the conversation, I would say. Um, that was ridiculous. Um, just just balls to the wall action pretty much all the way through um, on, on that one. It was basically two different races in one. And like I've always said, Worlds gets a bad rap purely because it's not MotoGP. Sometimes in terms of race quality, I mean, we all saw how ugly it got after Laguna Seca when some of the MotoGP guys were chipping in with their own two cents, saying how boring it was when they were ignoring some of the quality races we'd already had earlier in the year. But like this was a fantastic top quality world superbike race um with drama and captivation the whole way through so if, if that's a sign of anything to come um for world superbikes then hey they might have struck the formula again here yeah that's pretty mandatory pit stops every weekend for race two um which was i mean like i say the people were genuinely suggesting it like hey if they want to brace race two why don't they do this um so um so we'll see on that but it certainly didn't um inconveniences and did make the product any worse uh, in race two um let's talk about the race we actually got then and marco malandri coming through to win um that second race a very different kind of win to his first race victory uh where it was basically a straight fight between him and sykes which malandri ended up winning um late on this one was much more of a dog fight much more of a typical traditional philip island style of race um and malandri it appeared to have lost quite a bit of ground in amongst the pit stops because he was running right up the front early on in that first part of the race. And then when we saw the bikes reemerge from their pit stops, he was towards the back of the field again um, of that group and fought his way through and um, just backing up his brilliant race one victory. And who would have forecast? I don't think anyone, even Marco Malandri's most arduent fans, would have forecast before Philip Allen that he'd be leaving Australia with maximum points. Yeah, I, I, I would never have guessed that in a million years. Jeez, um, 50 out of 50 for Marco Manandri off the opening round. I mean, he's always been good, but he's never looked like a guy that could regularly go out and win races on that Ducati, um, especially with Chaz Davis still, you know, being, you know, the, the, the linchpin of the team at this point. And, of course, Kawasaki being Kawasaki. Ray has gone very well there the last few years, so... Yeah, you, you factor all that in. You would not have thought that, um, you know, Melandri would be a factor like that. So, yeah, a, a real genuine surprise to have him up the front for both races and looking very comfortable in, in, in how he won both races as well. Like, you know, like he, he, he looked like he was one of the fastest guys all weekend long and he, he, he looked like he more than deserved both his race victories. He was the better guy out there. Um, no no gimmicks. He won both races on pace, especially a very difficult race, one where nobody quite knew where the tire life was. Uh, Marco got it on the money. So yeah, it's it was a it was a difficult situation, a difficult weekend, but um Landry shined through on both occasions. Yeah, judged it brilliantly. I think he's I think he played it tactically very, very smart because I kind of watched that after knowing what we'd known from race one and how quick that Ducati was down the straight and from seeing it already in race two. I was watching that race thinking, as long as Malandri gets out of that final corner on the tail of the race leader, he's going to win the sprint to the line. 
um, because that Ducati's right. so quick down the straight. And that's exactly what he did. All the credit in the world to a beleaguered and injured and ill Jonathan Ray, who still produced a monumental dive bomb. He basically dive bombed the shit out of Melandri into turn one at the start of the final lap. Um, right. Which was brilliant, where Melandri just breezes past him without even needing the slipstream. Um, at the start of the final lap, and Johnny Ray just decides he's going to just dive bomb him into turn one and try and hold him off. Um, but exactly. but Melandri basically just positioned himself where he needed to be. Just stay on the tail of Johnny Ray and get out of that final corner. As long as you're on locks onto that rear wheel, much like the end of a sprint stage in cycling, where you see the guys like Cavendish or people like that just lock onto the rear wheel of the leading bike and then just drill them down the straight to the finish. Um, and Melandri, yeah. Melandri just did the same uh, out of the final corner in race two. He knew that as long as he ended that that final corner and got out of it second as a close second, he was going to win the sprint to the line because that's exactly um, what he did. And it, we, we can't take too many conclusions from that opening weekend because it's only it's a sample of one. We've only got one weekend to really draw any conclusions from. And race two was not a typical race. It wasn't a, a race where people were nursing tyres because no one had to. It was a sprint. It was two sprints um, punctuated by a tyre change. Um, but whatever way you slice it, um, Ducati have gone to the last three race weekends in Phillip Island and watched Johnny Ray win five out of six races. Um, Ducati winning none of them um, so for them to come away from Phillip Island with maximum points surely gives them hope that they're at least going to give Ray and Kawasaki more of a run than they have in the previous years surely you'd think um, like I said especially given that this is I mean, the they've got played. a points head start on him Indeed, they've got a head start. They've got they've got a head start on the situation. Melandri um, is is, is going to be a great blocker for at least a round the way it's going. Um, and as I said, this is probably going to be a bit of a, a development year for Ducati. But if they've still got a competitive package, that's a bonus. And it, it's looking like they they do again. Like, like nobody, everybody kind of was very quiet on Ducati going into the, into the season, as as mentioned and. They've looked very, very comfortable all season long. Um, both of their main, the main Ducatis were, were excellent all weekend long. And yeah, if 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 that's set to continue, we we have Aragon still early on in the season as well, and that's a Chaz Davis signature round. So um, there, there's opportunities for Ducati to certainly get their foot in the door early on in early on in the season and get a foothold in this championship. Yeah, and uh, it's led to questions that were they just sandbaggy in preseason testing, which I'm not so sure. Mm. I'm not so sure they were. Um, their team boss, um, Serafino Sforti, um, spoke to MCN and basically just said that through pre-season testing, we were just working on consistency and making sure that we, we made a tyre last for 22 laps rather than just two. Um, and throughout week's testing, he said that he'd just been telling everyone just to keep calm and focus on the racing and not look at the headline lap times. So um, perhaps Ducati were keeping their powder dry a little bit. Um, we'll come to the Kawasaki riders in a second, but while we're talking Ducati, let's talk about the two other key Ducati riders who were up the front um, through the race weekend. And um, Marco Melandri's teammate, Chaz Davies, um, in many ways, the most Chaz Davies weekend ever um, in, in, in Phillip Island, where he, he kind of looked into a podium in race one in some respects, where Jonathan Ray reversed back towards him with his blistered tyre, um, and Chaz Davies inherited third place as a result of that. Um, mm -hmm. But on a weekend where the Ducati clearly was the strongest package out there, Chaz Davies had a race two victory there to be grabbed, didn't he? And he managed to throw it away at the bottom of the MG hairpin. Oh, Chaz, not again. Um, it's like he started early this year. It's like it's it's that it's that classic Chaz Davies problem where he feels like he has to override the bike sometimes to get any sort of results Always out of it. on the edge. 
He's always on the edge, and when you're always on the edge, there's always a much greater chance that uh, you fall on the side and cut your ankle off. And that's what's happened with Chaz yet again. Um, luckily, neither Kawasaki would, you know, took maximum points. And Mar- obviously, Marco had the weekend. He had, a, he had a fantastic weekend, and that definitely softens the blow a tad. Um, I mean, it depends on how on whether you think Marco Melandri will be a contender for the whole season or not. That's up to you. Um, but... Uh, the, I mean, given the other main contenders we usually put in championship contention right now, um, it's not the end of the world. He's only twelve points behind Jonathan Ray, so that that's easily recoverable. It's 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 far from a disaster, but it's it's a, it's just another Chaz Davies blown opportunity, and these keep coming up with Chaz, and these and they're, they're frustrating for a guy who is more than capable of, of racking off like five six wins in a row, and you know really putting the fawn in the side of Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. As you say, we're going to go to rounds early on in the season, particularly Aragon, where he is notoriously very, very strong. Um, so perhaps not not all lost for Chaz Davies. Certainly not all lost because it's only one round in. But I, I can't help but feel that if Jonathan Ray is going to continue at his similar sort of level for the last few seasons, which, let's face it, he hasn't started at that level, but Jonathan Ray historically does not make these mistakes in a season, or if he does, he makes one of them um, in a season. Mm-hmm. You know, he very rarely has these DNF races where he just chucks away a load of points he usually maximizes the points that he can get out of any given race um right. and you could argue he did that in philip island he still managed to get a fifth out of a race where he was running around with an unsavory attire for the last five laps um so right. therein perhaps lies the difference between ray and davies and davies again um leaving points on the table um in a race weekend where he could easily have left the weekend with well what was he third in race one so he could easily have left the weekend with 41 points and the championship lead um, which you know would have been a great start to the season for him. So, yeah, disappointment I think at the end of the weekend for Chaz to see his teammate dominate, and he's already um, a good thirty-four points uh, behind um, at this stage of the season, which is a concern for Chaz Davies. If Melandri is going to continue to operate at that level, he might take a bit of chasing down, um, given that he's on the same bike. Um, but if we're going to praise a Ducati rider, and with all due respect to Melandri and his double. Um, but Melandri has shown in the past he's got real class in, in World Superbikes and when the bike suits he can win any race he feels like but the Ducati rider that I left that race weekend thinking about and talking about was Xavi Forres um, yes. who was absolutely outstanding um, it kind of goes under the radar how good he was in race one as well he only just lost out on that podium to Davies um, by mm. uh, half a second in that race one Davies and Forres raced to the line um, for that final podium spot in race one. Forez got the consolation prize of a race two pole um, as a result of it, because that reverse group regulation for those that don't follow World Two Points over the winter is still in place for this year. Um, mm-hmm. But um, I'd said in our preview last week, Dre, that I wanted Forez to get a, a dry weather rostrum at some stage at this season. He's got it in one race weekend, and it's not churlish to say he could easily have won it absolutely could have won it he was only 0.3 off the victory in race two and he was in the toe of of jonathan ray down the home straight at the end there that race was one lap longer who knows um at that point in time but uh yeah easily the most impressive chavi for us has looked on a world superbike um since his career started every bit as good as, as the other Ducatis around him and just the fa- a fantastic weekend is he um again he's, he's deserved a, a, a proper dry running rostrum for some time in the class and i'm glad he's finally got one 
um, an out, outstanding talent, outstanding rider, and has always had to had to, had to make do um, with being a little bit in the shadow of the factory team. But the guy is a is a consistent perennial top six runner on 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 almost every weekend. He's in there in the top six doing doing the Lord's work, and um, I'm glad he's finally got a. Uh, a podium to take away from that on the opening round as well. So uh, a very, very good side. And that's the most competitive I've seen Flores probably ever in World Superbikes. So I'm right up there with the leaders pretty much all the way through the weekend. So if he's up there with the heaviest of hitters, then that's a very reassuring sign going forward. Yeah, it's an interesting story, isn't it? The more you look into Flores' career, it, it's a, it is a great story. I mean, the guy's 32. Um, turns 33 in September. So he's a, in many ways, he's a bit of a late bloomer in his career. He's peaking sure. at a very late age. <laughs> Um, in his career. I mean, when I first started watching um, motorcycle racing and covering it to the level I do now, watching the lower classes, I remember coming into um, covering um, Moto2 um, in 2011, mm-hmm. and he was a Moto2 rider back then. Only lasted seven races, didn't score a point, and was booted out of his team mid-season. Um, he was with the Aspar team um, in 2011. Um, but, I mean, we need to give this guy so much credit for going away and almost reinventing and redeveloping and reviving his career. Went off to Germany... <laughs> won the German Superbike Championship in 2014, and he's now carved out a new career for himself as a very, very exceptional Superbike racer. Yeah, like, again, he is a top five or six dude in the field, and this is a good field, contrary to what people will tell you. You know, Ray, Sykes, Davies, Melandry, you know, to a lesser degree, to but by, by, by no slouches, lows. You know, Vandermark, well, if you, Cammy. If you, if you take out those first six riders you mentioned, he was the top rider in the championship last year. Yeah, exactly. And they're all on big factory deals, getting all the support in the world and getting the majority of the money. Um, again, like he might be the biggest benefactor of the new rules where they had, you know, the rules are now that factory teams have to sell parts to satellite teams at a, at a, at the same price, you know, at a set price, so which, price. you know, will, yeah, cost cap price to give the satellite teams a better chance of being able to develop in house as the season goes on. Like Forez could easily be the one, the guy that could benefactor from, benefit from this most. If they've got the money in that in that satellite outfit, they, they can they can basically run the exact same bike as Davies and Melandri are going forward. So, like that could be a huge help to him. And you know, this this may not be a fluke. There could be easily some more podiums coming. Um, so. It's, it's definitely worth keeping an eye on, but no, no matter which way you slice it, like he's taken another step forward, and this is like he is now an elite runner in this class by the looks of it, and a guy that could easily mix up mix up for podiums and even even race wins on occasion, the way it's going. With more than I thought from other teams in the field, which I'm sure we'll get to. Yeah, World Superbike's best kept secret. I'm going to start calling him Chavi Forres. Um, what a great weekend he had. Um, yeah, it's not his first ever podium in World Superbikes because he did have a third place in the monsoonical conditions at Lausitz Ring. Um, in uh, World mm-hmm. Race 2 um, 2016, the race that essentially was remembered for winning Jonathan Ray that year's World Championship when Sykes had the crash uh, and Ray went on to win. Forres was third in that race. Um, but this is his first ever rostrum in dry conditions in a World Superbike race in his career. Um, so congratulations to him. And um, yeah, he ended last year um, as one of the most consistent riders in the class. Finished the championship in seventh place, just shy of 200 points. Um, and he's already started this year with a fourth and a third, and he is, as we speak now, fourth in the World Championship um, after two rounds. Um, Let's talk Kawasaki then and and their weekend, and for once, we start with Tom Sykes, who, for the first time since being teammates to Jonathan Ray, leads him in the championship. 
um, which is an extraordinary start, given that they've been teammates now for this is their fourth season together. Um, right. This is the first time ever Sykes has led him in the championship. Um, but, I mean, history tells us that this is not one of Sykes' strongest venues, and even though he had a pole position, that doesn't necessarily tell us anything we don't already know, because he's on pole a lot of the time. Um, but it's been noticeable, certainly to James Whitting, who mentioned it on several occasions, how happy Tom Sykes was looking all weekend. Um, and you know, this is a guy who we've mentioned in the past had illness that blighted him for a lot of last season, had injuries that hurt him at the end of the season. He had that pretty bad accident at Portimao, which injured him. Um, and it seems at this very early stage that certainly mentally we're looking at a different Tom Sykes. Are you happy, Lewis? Are you, are you excited, Lewis? Is, 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 is this good news for the Yorkshireman here? This might, mm, this might mm, be as good mm. as it gets, so we'll take it. <laughs> we'll take it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like, it was definitely noticeable. I mean, Sykes has not looked that happy on a Kawasaki while not in Donington for quite some time. Well, I, I said um, pre-show before we started, I think that's the first time in a year and a half that Tom Sykes has beaten Jonathan Ray on pure pace in a superbike race at somewhere other than Donington. Yeah. yeah, on merit. Like, I, like again, there's there's no doubt about it. I think that was the most comfortable he's looked since starting out like that. See, I I, I, I completely agree. I, I, I he's not looked as comfortable out there. So certainly from what I've seen, anyway. Um, I'm not sure what's doing it. Again, maybe like again, looks like the 2017 season. Sykes had more gremlins than we thought. Clearly, the uh, the fun injury in Portimao was more significant than we realised at the time. Rather than just missing the race, he was clearly riding through pain for the rest of the season, which probably didn't help either. I mean, only just getting the plate removed at a test mm. the week before the season started. And again, now we found out he's been battling illness all through 2017 as well. So he was never really at 100%. Um, it's, 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 it's a shame. It looks like Sykes' season was a bit of a write-off, um, especially in the context of challenging Jonathan. But um, hey, now he's feeling fresh again, and you know he's he's, he's in better health, and again he's had the plate removed now, so he's, he's he feels like he's something back to his best. Um, maybe he'll be a, a, a maybe he'll be a bit more like 2016 and being just a bit a bit more of a challenge for Jonathan going forward. Mm. Um, so yeah, he's looked very comfortable out there. I mean, again, there's a lot of racing still to go, but he does tend to go well um, in in Thailand. <laughs> Um. Yeah. So there's there's a lot there's a lot there's, there's a lot to be excited about if you're a Sykes fan at the moment. Um, that was easily his best weekend head to head against Jonathan since since Donington a couple of years ago. Um. So yeah, like take it for what it is. It's it's certainly a good thing going forward. And given his his historical record around Phillip Island, which we've covered in the past, that is, um, you know, statistically, it is his best ever start. Uh, to a World Superbike season um, in terms of points return um, from the first weekend. Never has he left Phillip Island with 33 points from his two rounds. Um, he said in race two that he had a technical problem, um, which you know Stinnicks would say, well, a rider would say that when he's finished fourth. Um, but he, he claimed that he had a problem with power, which would go somewhere to explain why he was getting smoked down the straights um, by the Ducati. Right. Um, because he says that he felt that race could have been his. Because when he came out of there, he was the big winner, wasn't he, from the bike change, from the tyre changes. Uh, midway through the race he was sort of right at that sort of languishing at the back of that leading group in the first half of the race and then all of a sudden once mm-hmm. the once the tie changes happened he was running in second um behind Flores. so um he obviously gained from that jonathan ray claimed that sykes carved him up coming out of the pits uh, <laughs> yep. after after the pit after the pit stops which we were unable to see because of some laughably stupid race direction by the tv director 
uh, who decided to show us PJ Jacobson going around an empty track as the bikes were all coming out from their pit stops. Um, <laughs> but um, but be that as it may, um, he do, he did point to a quote refreshed mindset uh, Sykes um, for for starting the season so well, and um, he kind of goes back to a point that Greg made in our uh, season preview last week. Greg Haynes, who uh, if you haven't heard that interview, you can still go back and find it by listening to last week's episode of the show. Um, truly great way to spend 25 minutes just the knowledge from that guy Absolutely. on world superbikes is great and he and he refers to sykes and the fact that sykes is now changing his own style to suit the bike um, rather than what he's been doing for the last three years where he's essentially been trying to change the kawasaki to make it feel like the bike that he rode on his championship year in 2013 um and, right. and sykes is essentially sykes said himself last weekend that i'm not riding how i want to breaking earlier and trying to give the bike an easier time but it's what i have to do um, and it seems as if the penny's now dropped with him that if he's going to go anywhere near challenging Ray, he's going to have to change himself rather than keep expecting the bike to feel like his 2013 bike. So an encouraging start to the season for Tom Sykes, who sits second in the championship at the moment, um, one place at the moment and two points ahead of his teammate Jonathan Ray, who uh, ends the first weekend on 31 points, um, which is significantly less than he left Phillip Island with in any of the previous three years. Um, and for the first time since he's been riding in green, Jonathan Ray does not lead the world championship, um, mm? which is another incredible stat. Um, but given the uh, issues that were going on in the background, some of which we didn't know until today, um, given the injury that he sustained in a motocross accident two weeks ago, which he's been operated on today, the terrible cold he was suffering with all weekend as well, and the problems he was having with setup. Um in many ways, was that a good damage limitation job from Johnny Ray last weekend? He'll take it. I think, I mean, 31 points is far from a terrible haul for a race weekend. It's bad for Jonathan Ray's standards, which, are, which is terrifying to even suggest. But, uh, like, a, a, a solid podium, a, ra- a race two he could have very easily won on a different day. I think, I mean, it still looked like Ray was going to win race two, going through the final corner, and he realized, wait, what's Marco's bike suddenly doing there? Um, 21 thousandths of a second away from winning it. In, indeed. Um, like, 31 points is really not a bad haul. I, I'm, I'm not convinced Marco Melandri will be a threat for the entire season. He's still a handful of points around the guys who he needs to be in front of. This really isn't a bad haul for Jonathan Ray, especially given he we, we now know he was injured and ill, and he still took home 31 points. Um, if anything, I'd be concerned if you're anyone else in World Superbikes that this was the weakest Jonathan Ray has been physically and mentally probably since joining Kawasaki, and he still brought home 31 points. Yeah, it is a solid start to uh, to his season for him. Uh, one thing you suppose we can say is perhaps his, uh, his 5-5-6 record might be safe for another year. Um based on the way he started 2018 um but yeah not a bad start at all to the season for him it was it was noticeable listening to his interviews to the weekend how he was he was saying all weekend i mean first of all it was noticeable just the way he was talking how he clearly wasn't well um but he but he was saying all weekend how he's just not been happy with the bike um just didn't have the setup the way he liked it he on two separate occasions i heard him talking about how they'd made changes and they'd just basically gone back to a setup they knew Uh, he said it after super pole when he qualified uh, down in sixth um, and went back to a setup he knew for race one um, and then before race two they were going to throw a change at it in warm up that didn't work so again they reverted back to a setup they knew um, that they knew was going to be slightly easier on the tyres in race two even though there was no 
um, need to be set up on tyres because there was a mid-race tyre change. Um, but yeah, a decent enough start to the season for, for Jonathan Ray. 31 points. He's 19 off the championship leader, uh, Marco Melendri, but a long, long way to go um, in, in this season. Um <laughs> Moving on then to the other manufacturers, and one of the manufacturers we were perhaps expecting more from is Yamaha, um, who finished 6th <laughs> and ninth in race 1 with Lowe's and Vandermark, and then 5th and 7th in race 2, again in the same order, um, with 22 ahead of 60. Um, and it was such a disappointing weekend for Yamaha that perhaps the most headline-grabbing moment from their weekend was the moment when their two riders basically went to war with each other. Right. It, it seems that's always a thing with Yamaha. Like it's like boys, boys, stop fighting each other, and yet they can't help themselves because they're, they're often so evenly matched. Yeah, Alex Lowe's uh, furious, is shaking his head in race one. <laughs> like it's like Michael, you're ruining it for everyone. Um, <laughs> Michael just like probably just like like a dog has he probably had his tongue out under his arm, and like come on. <laughs> yeah, any wonder his tire fell apart later on. Yeah, like like you clearly got very excited, um, but. Yeah, I mean, I did expect more from Yamaha going in. I mean, we often teased that, uh, you know, this was going to be, like, the biggest benefactors of the new rules. And that, um, you know, they, they, they expect to make gains. I mean, Greg Haynes even went a pretty bold shooter shot and said, you know, multiple wins each for both their riders this season. They did not look anywhere near that, really, in Philip Island this time around. If anything... They looked a little bit worse off than they were this time last year when Alex Lowe's was leading part of, part of race one and looked a lot more competitive for the win himself. That I thought was interesting. Um, it looks like Yamaha may have taken half a step backwards. Um, again, still early days, so I'm not going to try and read too much into it, but um, I did expect more from Yamaha this weekend, and I, I was I was genuinely surprised that they were that, they were that far off the pace, um, given where everybody else was, and that... Uh, Seemingly Ducati and Xavier Forez and, and the Aprilia, which we'll get to, were the real surprises of the weekend. Yeah, both riders <laughs> said after race one how they were just not feeling at all comfortable on the bike uh, in race one. The bike just wasn't wasn't working properly around Phillip Island, and um, they felt much happier with it in race two. They were both fairly competitive. They were both in the leading group in race two, but weren't ever really in a position um, to win the race. Um, they're going to have an upgrade, as, as Greg Haynes told us last week, for Thailand, so perhaps we might get more of an idea of where Yamaha are at um, in round two in Buriram um, towards the end of March. Um, but yeah, a disappointing start, I think, for a team who we expected to be much closer to the front. We probably expected them to be Kawasaki's closest rivals for a lot of this year. Yeah. Um, and they were nowhere near it last weekend. Um, Dre, you mentioned Aprilia, and this is certainly a weekend of what might have been for them. Um, Lorenzo Savadori quickest in free practice on Friday which meant he went into Super Pole as the fastest rider of the weekend so far um, and promptly high-sided at Siberia in that uh, Super Pole session and injured his collarbone we won't see him again until Thailand um, and Eugene Laverty though salvaged the result for them by qualifying in the middle of the front row second on the grid um, for right. Aprilia in, for the first race but then promptly fell back finished 8th 23 seconds back in that first race as that fast pace, faster than expected pace at the front, really accounted for Eugene um, in that first race. But uh, it's it's easy to forget in amongst all of the chaos of that second race that around three laps in, Eugene Laverty was busy clearing off at the front of race two until he suffered the same accident to his teammate at the same corner, Siberia. 
Yeah, like I don't like like will the, will the will like will the real prettier please stand up because like I don't know what it is yet. No. Um, as mentioned, Savadori was the fastest man in practice going into Super Bowl, and Laverty looked like he was about to check out of race two at one point. Um, like this for me was the most competitive a prettier has looked since since they rebooted their team with Laverty and Savadori. They, they looked very impressive indeed. Um, and yet Laverty, you know, Savadori has an awful crash in Super Bowl, and you know he's out for the weekend. So that was a write-off from the get-go. And then on the other side of the coin, Laverty just fell backwards again. I don't know if that's just tire-related issues again, because they're, they're pretty much one of the worst on their tires in the field last season. I don't know if they've if they've had repeat concerns with that again with Laverty falling back, but it's clear the pace is there. Mm. Like the pace is there. I, I was joking about him during Super Bowl saying, well look, a pretty are doing their best Kawasaki Moto GP impression, always being the first guy to stick a qualifier on. Yeah. Just just to scare some people. Yeah. Um like if anyone knows those two, mid two thousands qualifying sessions back in the day, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about here. But uh, but um, oh jeez! But he held um, on to it. He, he ended up qualifying second. Yeah, he did. Is and that... I was like, wait, he's he's still here. Uh, <laughs> okay, um, we'll, we'll take it. Um, but yet, despite that, it just didn't quite come together for him. And Eugene um, Laverty said the bike felt amazing in that second race, and it looked amazing as he was pulling out a, a comfortable lead. I think he was already two seconds clear at the front of the field, um, which is the chasing pack was being led by Forres in that second race. And um, whatever the, the situations of, of tyre changes, he was already getting himself into territory of, that's going to take some pulling back around a circuit like Phillip Island. Like, no matter how competitive or uncompetitive your bike is, it's very difficult to jump across a gap that big in, in a World Superbike race around that kind of circuit. So Lamity was getting himself into a very strong position in that second race before he looped it uh, at, high, at Siberia, the same corner that his teammate injured his collarbone at um, in Super Bowl. So um, Aprilia, again, might, might look at this, much like Chess Davies, as a big missed opportunity. So we'll see if they're as competitive as that uh, at other circuits this year um, because they still haven't had a roster finish um, since they joined forces. Wilma Wood Milwaukee at the start of last year um another manufacturer who we have to talk about and this one is a much more positive discussion is honda who had a, a very poor 2017 for a catalog of reasons uh, many of which were out of their control um mm. but they've already dre as we've discovered before we started this show they've already matched their best result with the new fireblade in one fell swoop with neon cameo Indeed, like Camia coming in immediately, um, getting Honda's probably best individual weekend from a rider since the, since the uh, Red Bull reboot. Um, so yeah, I mean, like Camia with a sixth and a seventh, sixth place being in race two, which matches Honda's best results since they've come back. I mean, Stefan Bradl had a sixth in Assen, but um, yeah, as an overall weekend, this was very solid from Camia. Like. I'm starting to think that, you know, he may not have the overall upside that he had at MV Augusta when, you know, there was weekends where that bike was just a rocket um, for some unknown reason that I've still not been able to figure out myself. <laughs> but, um, like, if they can get a bit of consistency into that Honda team, then there's no reason why Cameo can't be into the thick end of the top eight in the championship, mm. um, uh, which would be a, a which would be the first time Honda's had that sort of leverage since Sylvain Gintoli was in the team. Um, still waiting for the Gintoli homecoming tour yeah. to be confirmed but uh, more on that soon hopefully yeah well but, we saw uh, we saw cameo blasting past johnny ray at the start of race two mm. um and uh, as greg haynes refers to it is a uh, new double role as a uh, world superbike reporter for mcn um he, he as he mentions 
you know, what Honda passing a Kawasaki? I mean, what is this we're watching um, in race right. two? Because that's not something we've seen for a long time. Um, so, so Kamiya, uh, as I mentioned last week, the perfect rider for that team in the scenario they're in at the moment with a, a bike that he's developing, um, a team that's looking to make progress and a, a rider who is just tailor-made for that kind of role within a team. Um, I don't think it's a role. I don't think it's a role that he particularly relishes. I don't think he likes being referred to as a good development rider, Kamiya. Um, no. But he certainly is one. Um, so I think he's going to. Him and that team are in a good position to move forward. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what he and that team do together this season. Just 2.7 seconds off the outright victory of race two, um, which is as close I think as that bike has been to the front um, at any stage in its in its incarnation. This current Fireblade. So. Real reason for encouragement with that team uh, at the end of um, the opening weekend. And boy, does that team deserve some good news and some good press because they've, they've had a terrible time of it over the last 18 months. So we wish them well and a good start to the season for Honda, who at this early stage are not bottom of the Manufacturers' Championship. They are actually fourth at the moment uh, in the Manufacturers' Championship with only um, Kawasaki, Jakati, and Yamaha ahead of them um, in the overall championship. So um, they're already making strides up the order, which is good. Uh, to see. Um, just behind Honda in uh, fifth position are BMW. Um, of course, only have the one rider, Loris Baz, uh, who returned to World Superbikes last weekend and not the ideal return, I think it's fair to say, for Baz into World Superbikes. It's not necessarily his fault, um, more due to the machine that he sat on. First of all, the handlebar snapped clean off it in, in Friday free practice, which caused him to crash the bike. Um, oh, good God, is, that's terrifying. Which is horrendous. Um, pretty sure that was at turn one as well, the same corner that we saw Kinsafoglu have a horrendous crash um, later no. on the same weekend. Um, basically, the handlebar coming off, which is um, which is no fun. Um, and really, I mean, Baz finished 11th in race one, 9th in race two, having missed out on Super Bowl two. Um, if anything, that's kind of exposed the limitations of the bike he's on, doesn't it? It does. And we've talked about BMW before, and we've talked about how their their main factory isn't interested in superbike development, really. They'll just give you a bike and say, here, have at it, basically. Um, and it's a shame because, again, Baz, I've always thought Baz was a solid MotoGP rider, and he was a race winner in World Superbikes before and Kawasaki, and he's capable of good results. And we've seen him of good results, but I don't think he's going to be doing that on that BMW. I think there's too many stronger dudes in front of him. So, you know, the big, you know, the big return of Laurie Spaz to the series, you know, is is already on, on track for a bit of a whimper more than a bang, unfortunately, because, well, through no fault of his own, it's it's looking like BMW just hasn't really got the best package out there at the moment. I mean, behind the MV Augusta of, of, of Jordi Torres in race, in, in race two and in the ballpark of guys like Roman Ramos and PJ Jacobson is probably not ideal um, for what Baz was probably hoping for coming back into the sport. No, and beaten by Torres on the MV Augusta um, in race two, probably would have been beaten by him in race one as well had Torres not had that flat tyre late in the race as well. Um, right. Torres, who, who came away from the race weekend with eight points from his first weekend on that MV Augusta having topped Super Pole one. Um I want to mention the rookies before we move on to Super Sport. Um, and I mentioned Torres topping Super Pole 1. He was the, the only rider that got out of that Super Pole 1 session and into the pole shootout was one of the rookies, Toprak Razgatioglu, um, who qualified... Nailed it. <laughs> we've been practicing. Um, he qualified on the third row of the grid. Um, and when you look at his overall results from the weekend, Ray, 13th in race 1, 10th in race 2, um, it, it doesn't necessarily look all of that you know, impressive, but... He ran until the first um, tyre changes in that second race. 
he was legitimately running in the leading group, wasn't he? He was. Like, that leading group, he was right in the middle of it, looking very solid indeed. And, uh, yeah, after the stops kind of faded a little bit there. But um, it's it's not a bad first weekend for Top Rack um, in, in, in the class. I mean, a top 10 finish is is nothing to scoff at as a rookie in the class. It's a stacked top end of the field for sure. Um, still a lot of quality in there. And I know Top Rack's had a lot of hype going into uh, said, said debut as well, which, you know, might have actually probably been at his detriment um, by the time it's all said and done, because probably, everyone's probably been a little bit too excited about Top Rack going in, but uh, on, the, on the Pachetti bike there. But it, again, we mentioned it with we mentioned it with Xavi before that you know having a, a satellite bike means you know it's not the drawback it used to be. Um, if it, it, there's just chance they could easily progress faster going forward. Um, so I think it'll only get better as time goes on. And again, we've seen it before. The guy's speed is phenomenal in, in testing sessions around. Um, so like the potential is certainly there. Um, um, so yeah, I look forward to seeing what he can pull out there. Yeah. I think he's going to be a real star as the season goes on. He's, he's on a good bike. He's on the, essentially a factory spec Kawasaki, uh, ZX 10 R. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what he does as the season goes on. I mean, it was a great race, a uh, great start to his World Superbike career as well. As he went out in Super Bowl 1, and he was dive-bombing people in Super Bowl, uh, which I thought was brilliant. I was like, well, that's what we've been told he's like. Um, he's basically in Keenan Safoglu's image um, as, his, as, yes. his young, as his young protégé, running the same number 54 in, in Superbike. So uh, I think we're going to have a lot of fun watching him as the season goes on. He is a really entertaining rider as well as an exciting prospect. Um, let's tell you then how the race is finished then from... Uh, the pile last weekend. Malandri, the race one winner from Sykes, who took until Donington last year to beat Rainer Race. He did it at the first attempt this year. Uh, Chas Davies, third ahead of Forres. Um, that was his equal best dry weather result for Ducati uh, until the next day. Johnny Ray, fifth, which um, is surprisingly low for him, losing the championship lead for the first time in 76 races. Um, in World <laughs> Superbikes, um, which is incredible. Um, Alex Lowe's sixth, Leon Camille seventh on the Honda, Eugene Laverty from the front row down to eighth, Michael Vandermark ninth, and Leandro Mercado, who's now under Kawasaki this season for the Oralac team, in tenth. Um, Loris Baz, Jake Gagne, Raz Gattioglu, Roman Ramos, Jezek uh, completing the points. Um, Jezek on a uh, privateer Yamaha. Uh, race two then, Melandri the winner from Ray by 21 thousandths of a second. Um, Chevy Forrest third, Tom Sykes fourth, um, Alex Lowe's fifth, then came Camille sixth, Vandermark seventh, Torres eighth, Baz in ninth, and Razgatioglu tenth. Um, the rest of the points were rounded out by Roman Ramos, Leandro Mercado, Jake Gagne, PJ Jacobson, one of the rookies who led a race incredibly. He was the last man to change or well, the last man to legally change tyres uh, in race two, and led the race incredibly. So you can tell everyone he led a World Superbike race in his debut weekend in 14th at the end. And Eugene Laverty, who crashed, remounted, finished two laps down, but got a point in 15th. Um, Chance Davis DNFing, as did Jezek. Um, three riders did not start, two of the wild cards and Samidori, who was injured. In fact, four didn't start, because Hernandez was also injured and didn't start. Um, the other rider who took part in that second race, and it's a funny story, so I'll mention it briefly, Dan Falzon, the Australian wildcard, who also led a World Superbike race, and I'm certain he did this deliberately. He got himself DQ'd because he went past the pit window and led the race as a result. Um, instantly disqualified, but Danny Falzon can tell everyone that he led a World Superbike race, um, which he can take to his grave with him. So well done to you, 
taking the yeah, taking answer. taking the deliberate DQ. Um, so he could lead a world superbike race. Championship looks like this. Marco Melandri, as I mentioned, first time in 76 races, someone other than Jonathan Reyes led the championship. Uh, Melandri leads it on 50. It's Tom Sykes, who's his nearest challenger in second. Um, that's the first time in 76 races he's been ahead of Johnny Ray in the championship. Um, in second, 33 to race 31 in third. Chavi Forres is just two further back in fourth. Um, so he's right in the mix as well. Alex Lowe's is up in fifth, um, ahead of Camille sixth. Chaz Davies, by virtue of that DNF, is down in seventh on 16, level with Michael van der Mark. Loris Baz, um, through consistency and scoring in both races, is up in ninth on 12 points, and Leandro Ricardo completes the top 10 on 10 championship points. Uh, right then, on to World Super Sport, which um, started last year in batshit crazy fashion with some crazy races at the start of the season. Um, this one, for much of the weekend, threatened to be the same with um, World Super Sport, Super Sport sorry, mirroring the Superbike class and having a mid-race tyre change. Uh, now, because of an early crash involving the Estonian Hannes Soma, we did not have that um, because we had an early red flag, which meant that they reduced the race distance to nine laps. Um, which reduced the mm. or removed the necessity for a mid-race tyre change. Um, so we were expecting a chaotic nine-race, nine-lap dash in the in the race. But what we got instead was pure domination from the winner, um, and Lucas Mayas, who was um, at the end of last season, he won the championship. Was still having fingers pointed in his direction, understandably, given the way he won it with uh, Sofoglu riding injured for a lot of the season, but. Um, no matter what anybody says, Dre, Mahias looked every inch the world champion last weekend. Dominant from start to finish. He, he looked like he, he he had the measure of the field pretty much right from the start, I would say. Um, just proving that 2017 was no fluke and that pink is still clearly in fashion. Um, so, uh, yeah, as you uh, as you said, like, again, he, he looked like he was very comfortable out there. And again, like, just showed that, that that form he had last year was no fluke. He looked very, very solid out there pretty much all the way through and got, a, I think, a much-deserved victory again. And uh, again, unfortunately, the circumstances of it was another, like, unfortunate, unwarranted asterisk next to next to Lucas of the way his... Uh, his uh, super sport career has started. It, it just seems to be at the detriment of somebody else, which is always unfortunate. Um, but the way it's going right now, I mean, you can't argue with it. Lucas is as good as anybody in the class, and he's doing a fantastic job right now. I mean, you can only beat who they put in front of you at the yeah, end of the day. Yeah, he was dominant. I'm, I'm whatever everyone says. I'm not going to put an asterisk next to this win. Uh, in Philip Arling, I don't. I think even a full, I, I think even a fully fit Sofoglu was never going to keep up with Mahias. Um, because he, he was quickest right through free practice on Friday, pole by a mile on the Saturday, um, and then led every lap um, in on Sunday. That had all the hallmarks, a nine-lap sprint, that had the whole, all the hallmarks of uh, the kind of race where someone's going to just beat up Mahias, knowing that it's a nine-lap sprint, and push him back down the field. But he just bolted straight away and gapped them immediately um, in that in that second part of the race and won it comfortably. Um, and he is looking like the world champion. It's almost like... 
you know the old phrase that often gets made in in wrestling. Adam Johnson, if he's listening, will know this phrase where they sometimes say mm. um, the whether it's the the guy that makes the title or the title that makes the the, the guy. And you look at people like Jinder right. Mahal last year, who was basically elevated because mm. he had the championship on his shoulder. Um, and it, it kind of looks like that with Mahias, doesn't it? Where by winning the championship, no matter the circumstances of it, by winning that title, it almost seems to have elevated him as a rider and made him a stronger rider. And he's now. Now that he's got that title under his belt, he's now showing us all just what a class rider he is. He absolutely is, and as you say, like he seems to. I don't think to... we saw him at this level at any stage last year, but arguably, it's no, he time. didn't. No, no, he didn't look like a guy that was like, yeah, I'm going to go out and win this race and win this championship. He didn't ever really look like that because of Keenan's ridiculous win streak in the middle of the season. Um, it never really felt like Mahias was the best guy in the class, and now it looks like he might be. Um, it's it's. It's like that was the most convincing I've seen Lucas over a weekend, top to bottom, since he started in World Supersports. And yeah, like he he's he had moments of bad luck too last season, but I, he looks like a different rider this year. He looks like he's more confident, and he, and he looks like he he's taken that prestige of, of winning the championship last year, and he's he's tapped it's tapped into his head because he looks like a different and more improved rider this year going forward. He does, and uh, we'll talk about these riders individually in a second. But the the top four in the end was uh, Mahias from uh, Randy Krubenacker, Sandro Cortese and Federico Caracasulo. Now, the uh, thing that those four have all in common is that they're all on Yamaha R6s. Um, and you mentioned mm. Lucas Mahias, who's looking at the moment like the best rider in the class. Um, I think what he certainly has at the moment, Dre, looking at the uh, early form guide, is the best bike in the class. Yes. Now, there is no argument now. The Yamaha R6 is the way to go. I, 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 I'm not sure if Keenan would ever walk away from Kawasaki, given how given how strong they've been over the years. Um, but it, he seems like to, he seems to be the exception yeah, to the, the norm. He's keeping their head above water, isn't he? Exactly, because it looks like Yamaha is just the team to go. I mean, with him, Caracasulo, Nicky Tuli as well to a degree last year. It seems that you know, it seems like the obvious thing to say right now is it, it looks like. He's the man right now. Although the bike is 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 the, the clear number one choice in the field. So, yeah, like the other guys have got to raise their game because the the new Yamaha R6 looks fantastic out there. It's doing a brilliant job and it, it is taking wins home on, on an almost regular basis now. Yeah, feel good stories on the two of the spots on the podium alongside Mahias on, on Sunday as well. Randy Krumenacker in second for the Badal Evan Bros team, which ran Gamarino last year on Hondas. They've um, taken the Vogue decision and switched to Yamaha for this year, and it's already paid off for them with Krumenacker in second. A rider who I think has just basically found his level, um, and I don't mean that disrespectfully to Krumenacker. He kind of had a uh, an anonymous season last year on that Pachetti Kawasaki bike in World Superbikes where he was always somewhere in the midfield and then um, was kind of shown up whenever Leon Haslam's jumped on the bike. He was right up the front, kind of challenging for podiums on that bike, um, which kind of mm-hmm. shows where Krumenacker was at. He's a race winner before... Um, in Supersport, won his debut race in the class at this very circuit, Philip Island, two years ago. Um, so he's got pedigree. He's been in Moto2 a number of years as well in the past, and looks like he's found his level, second on his return to the class. And and Sandro Cortese, Dre, in third, who um, was looking for a ride a few weeks ago when um, sponsors and funding dried up and left him without a ride at Kiefer in, in Moto2 when they dropped from two riders to one. Um, and dropped Cortese as a result. He's found a new home at the Calio team in World Supersport on a Yamaha, straight away right. at home on the bike and on the podium. I think this is a guy who's going to get on very well in this class. 
Yeah, as, as like a lot of journos and a lot of guys in the know, I, I, the common theme I was hearing is that Sandro Cortese is taken to that by like a duck to water. Um, and again, that podium kind of proves him right. Um, very, very good performance from Sandro Cortese. He's, again, another guy that's looked fast right from the get-go. And yeah, he looked very, very comfortable out there. He was he was excellent um, during um, during during that opening weekend. Again, was adapted very quickly to this, to this different breed of six hundred. And yeah, he, he he could be one to watch as the season goes. He's only going to get better given given this was such a strong opening weekend. He's only going to get more comfortable on the bike as weekends go by. So I would definitely keep an eye on him going forward. He looks like he's going to be fantastic. Yeah, and he's, his, and he's not had a, a full preseason either. Like I say this this move came very very late for him. Um, so it's not like he's been testing all winter with that bike. He jumped at it quite late, um, a couple of weeks before the first round of the season, and straight away he's competitive. And you know we shouldn't forget who Sandro Cortez is, former Moto3 champion, um, podium man in Moto2 um, in the not-too-distant past as well. So this guy has got real pedigree and real quality. And um, we've already seen um, guys jump out of this class and go very well in Moto2, the likes of Sam Lowe's. And Safoglu even briefly, when he jumped across the Moto2, was on the podium in Aston um, in 2011. So um, if you're strong in Moto2, you'll certainly be strong in Super Sport. Um, and Cortese is proving that. And yeah, he could be a real dark horse um, in this season as it goes on. If, if the championship's going to be won by a Yamaha rider, um, perhaps Cortese might well, as the season goes on and get stronger, take it to Mahia. So we'll have to see um, as that goes on. Um, Fifth place in the race behind the four Yamahas up the front went to a triumph and Luke Stapleford, the one triumph that started the race because Stefan Hill injured himself earlier in the weekend. Um, and course real encouragement for Stapleford because outside of his home round at Donington last year, um, it's very rare that we've seen Stapleford and the triumph look this strong. Indeed. Um, again, that one fourth place at Donington last year was like the highlight of an otherwise difficult season for Stapleford. But uh very comfortable out there this time around. An excellent performance from Luke. And again, showing, showing some of that uh, that BSB class he had a, a couple of years back. But uh, yeah, absolutely. And again, again, like, Trump's not looked this good for some time. It's kind of in their best interest to be fast, given their Moto2 exploits coming very, very soon. So um, Stapleford's sort of like the flagship guy for him right now. So they need to get behind him, and that's a good sign. Yeah, we saw a Triumph-powered Calyx testing this week, didn't we, in, uh, in Valencia, I believe it was. Um, so, um, yeah, that uh, project is ramping up as they look to enter Moto2 next year as the uh, sole engine supplier. Um, but, yeah, strong result for them. Um, highest the winner from Krimanaka, Cortese, Caracasula and Stapleford. Then came Rafa de Rosa in sixth. He's uh, the new rider for Factory Envy Augusta um, in sixth position, one of their two riders. Uh, the other being Ayrton Badabini. De Rosa was sixth. Uh, and then claims Jules Clazelle in seventh for the NRT uh, Nerds Racing Team on a Yamaha. Um, that doesn't even come close to telling the story of his race. Um, he outbraked himself early on in the race, fell to the very back of the field, and came back up to seventh um, in a race where he probably had the pace to run up the front. What the hell does this guy have to do to catch a break, Dre? I, I don't know. How many how many black cats did he kick when he was a child? Um, that's all I want to know because... Uh... Like I, I do, I do not understand how how the man can be so bitterly unlucky because he, he, his heart he, out, doesn't he? He does. He really, really does. And despite that, it just it just doesn't seem to be working for him. And it's 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 a bummer because he's he's quality. And uh, yeah, like he he he, he, like he he he's better than the results will ever say about about Clazelle and. Uh, just deserves better, really. And it's a shame he's missed out so often. Yeah, he finished seventh ahead of Kyle Smith um, for the uh, Gamar team. 
Badavini, who I mentioned earlier on, second MV Augusta Fatriada in ninth. Then Thomas Graringa, the uh, teammates Clozel at the Nerds team in tenth. Nicky Two, the eleventh for CIA Landlords Insurance Honda. Then Ken Loris Cresson, who replaced Tuli at Calio in twelfth. <laughs> then in thirteenth, we find Keenan Sofoglu. Um, now, his weekend um, would probably take a whole different podcast, a whole new two hours to explain. But in short, um, he suffered a massive crash in free practice three on Saturday morning at term one. Not a place where you have slow crashes. Um, mm-hmm. Knackered his leg, still like a fucking madman, went out and qualified in Super Bowl and put it on the front row of the grid. Uh, of course. Because he's keen in Um of And course. then even in a nine-lap dash dray, he found himself in too much pain to even ride it at full speed towards the end of the race. Finished down in 13th as he was plummeting down the order late on. Um, and, the, I mean, the poor guy, I mean, he, he keeps riding through unbelievable levels of pain. I mean, I, I, I can't think of any other one, any other person in the world who's got the same level of pain threshold as he has. Um, but, <sighs> but <laughs> thankfully, we have to say, the guy has confirmed today that he doesn't need surgery um, on this leg injury. He just needs recuperation. He should be okay for Thailand. But, once again, just like last year, the guy has given Mahias a massive head start. Yeah, um, a 20-plus point advantage, 22 points off, off the opening round already. And, like, Lucas looks like he's, there's like a better rider than, yeah. he, than he was last season. And that, like, it's, it's like, let's make the handicap even bigger for him this year because, you know... It's fun. Like he's won so many titles now. It's like we, we have to find ways of up in the difficulty. Um, so, yeah, bless him. Um, it's, it's God. Like he has a, a, a ridiculous level of pain tolerance that I, I can't even begin to imagine. Um, he's, he's he's a resilient guy. I'll give him that much. He's a resilient motherfucker because like he he, he just keeps finding ways of recovering, coming back, and still being the same phenomenal rider that he is in, in this in, in the super sport class. And uh, I have to wonder, like, is there going to be a, a line drawn where it's one injury too many with Keenan? Because he seems to be getting dinged up a lot these days. Mm. Um, and he's, he's not getting any younger at 33 as well. So, again, I, I, I hope he's in good health, like, altogether going forward because it could easily be... Um, it, it's, it's it, they, they, these can add up over time, and I do worry for him a little bit. Um, but um, he's he's such a he's such a phenomenal rider, and he's he's got such resilient spirits that uh, um, I don't think anything besides getting hit by a truck will put him <laughs> down for more than one weekend. Um, yeah, even so, then, he'd be like, nah, "I'll run it off." Um, yeah, he's yeah, just, he's I'll, just that I'll, kind I'll, of guy. I'll walk off. I'll walk it off. Yeah, just, just <laughs> put, put a pin in it, and I'll go out there. Um, yeah, yeah he's, he's incredible um, an incredible guy and yeah, like you say 33 he's won everything there is to win in this class he's won five titles uh, he just it's a pure love of the sport I think and just the drive to win again that drives him to, to do this again and put himself through that kind of pain and um, it, it makes you just want him to do well doesn't it um, in this mm-hmm. class and, but I, I agree with you completely I don't think it's going to be anywhere near as easy to chase down Mahias this year um, I, I just think he's a different animal altogether this year, Luke's my ass, and he's gonna he's gonna win a lot more than just the two races that he won last year uh, in, so. in Aragon and Qatar. Um, so um, yeah, keep an eye out for that. Um, Sofoglu, if a Kawasaki's gonna do anything this year, it's gonna be King Sofoglu. But yeah, Mahia and Yamaha looking a completely different animal um, in 2018. Um, just to round up the result, then Mahia's the winner from Krimanaka and Cortese. Um, Karakasulo fourth, Stapleford fifth, De Rosa sixth. Uh, Cluzel in 7th, Carl Smith 8th, Badabidi 9th, and Thomas Gradinger in 10th. No need to give you the championship standings, just hit the back 15 seconds function on your phone and you can listen to the result again, because it mirrors the race result.
Right then, let's move on to MotoGP and talk about all the news that came from the Thailand test. Uh, first of all, before we move on to all the other big news, because it's been a couple of weeks since we've covered MotoGP uh, on this show. Um, we'll start with the Thailand test, Ray, and the, the main takeaways from it. Uh, we won't go through the test in too much detail because we've got a lot to get through, but... Um, Three main takeaways I took from it, and we'll start with the first of them, which is nothing to do with how competitive the bikes are and how strong the different manufacturers are, but the sheer number of people that turned up for a pre-season test was extraordinary. Yeah, the last day of the test, the main grandstand looked full, as far as I could see. Um, it, they're like... Thailand the bike mad. They really are. Like they like they they show up in force for World Superbikes and it's still not the most relevant series out there, let's be honest. And uh, compared to MotoGP and they like a test and the main grandstand is full. Like you will you will not get that on any other place on, on the planet with MotoGP. They they've done tests in Haref and Catalonia that don't get that sort of attendance. It is utterly insane and a, a great advertisement for the sport going forward. Like 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 it looks like it was a genius idea of going to Thailand because it looks like they they are mad keen for this sport and they're they're going to sell out probably with weeks before the event even takes place. Yeah, I'm already looking forward to that uh, first uh, first Thai MotoGP race in uh, Buriram um, in October. Um, now, three days of the test, all three days had something very key in common in that they were topped by Honda riders. Um, now, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to dominate the season, although Matt Marquez might just do that. Um, but it's very clear that Buriram as a circuit does favour them. I mean, if you look at the circuit at a glance and just look at the layout of it, it does look, if you just flip it 90 degrees, it looks very similar to the Red Bull ring um, in yes. Austria. Um, so many are expecting Ducatis to go well, but it's very, very clear that the Hondas were the bikes to beat around there. They did. I mean, one, two, and three, I think it was, with Crutchlow um, being involved in that as well. Um, it looked like uh, Honda were, had, were having a very comfortable time out there. Very, very impressive indeed. Um, whew, uh, it, it, it could be a scary one going forward, um, if that's how they're going to be. Um, it, it looks like it could be a Honda track. But it also, if anything, from day one of the Qatar test has shown in, it looks like it's going to be just a sporadic as, as last year in the field in the sense of um like just guys who have just different um just different preferences to different tracks by the looks of it because again this this one looks like a comfortable one for honda Qatar, it's looking like it's it's looking like a yamaha are, are, are back on top of the timing sheet so who knows at this point but uh, uh it, it's looking like uh, the early signs are showing that uh they, they look very, very good indeed, um, Honda, all right around this new circuit. Yeah, they are. And, um, yeah, to to back up that point, uh, we'll, we'll talk about the, the, the Qatar test in much more detail next week when we do our season preview. But, yeah, Vinales, quickest for Yamaha on day one of that test. Um, and on, I think, two separate occasions today, when I checked the live timing, Valentino Rossi was quickest as well, but dropped down to seventh later on in the day. Um, mm -hmm. So they're looking good. But it was a real feature, Dre, wasn't it, of the Thailand test of how much they struggled. Um Jean Zarco ended the week's second fastest on the old Yamaha for Tech 3. Right. Um, but at the end of the final day, Valentino Rossi was 10th, Maverick Vinales 12th. Um, now, in their defence, they were only 0.7 and 0.8 off the pace, respectively, which just shows how close yeah. MotoGP is nowadays. But in many ways, that's the problem facing Yamaha now, that all they need to be is half second off their normal pace, and that's where they're going to be. They're going to be midfield, and it's still pretty clear that Yamaha don't know how competitive they're going to be from circuit to circuit. Yeah, 0.5 a lap is going to now put you outside of the top six. And 
Whew, that's 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 alarming for MotoGP. That how close it is now. Where you know, half if you're half a second off your usual pace, you're not getting on the podium now. Whereas two years ago, you could be half a second off on a, if you and if your bike was painted orange or blue, you'd still be on the podium most likely. Um, just just you know, that'd be a mediocre round for you. But um, now, like I, I think there's easily six or seven dudes in there that can win a race on their day. And they're not all factory runners either. Um, hi, Johan. But um, yeah, it is one of those things now where half a second is significant in MotoGP, where it probably wasn't two or three years ago. The field is a hell of a lot closer together. And like, even when guys are attacking Nakagami less than a second off the top, and he's a frigging rookie. He was eighth um, on the final day. Eighth on the final day as well. And again, a guy that's been on this bike for literal just a f- like weeks. Yeah, and even Cal uh, Crutchlow, his teammate, went public with how impressed he was by him. Yeah, like I said, like they were they were spending time in the paddock looking at Taka's data and, and la- like him and Marquez were laughing at some <laughs> of the apex and cornering speeds that Taka was pulling off around some of these corners. Again, they're gonna look like he's adapted to the class extremely quickly. Um like Taka might be a bit better than we can- we may have given credit for in Moto two. But uh, again, like the, the field is so competitive now, and it's a beautiful thing to witness because we we have no idea now going into a weekend who looks good and who doesn't. And again, Qatar might have might have blown that one out of the water again. We'll probably talk about that more in next week's season preview. But um, yeah, it's it's looking like it's anyone's guess right now going into the opening round, and that's fantastic yeah, news. Just the way we like it. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the the circuit layout, looking at it at a glance on a sheet of paper, looks remarkably like the Red Bull ring, which led us all to look at Ducati. Um, they didn't necessarily um, top the time sheets as we expected. Davizioso was 7th on the final day uh, on a 130.1. Fastest lap from Pedroza was a 29.7. Um, now, on the second day of the test, um, Jack Miller was on a 30.1 as well in third place. He was the fastest non-Honda rider on the second day. Miller continuing to impress all winter on that Ducati. Um, but one rider that didn't, Trey... Um, on any day, really, but in particular on the third day, it was Jorge Lorenzo, who ended the final day in 22nd place on a 31.6, uh, slower than Hafish Sirin um, on the Yamaha, who was riding a MotoGP bike for the first time in his life. Um, proof, really, that for all of the big talk over the winter, there's still a bit of work to do there for Jorge. Yeah, like, we, like, like was this a pattern time a bit of a catfish? Yeah, like um, he still seems to turn up at certain places and end up being nowhere. Yeah, this this that was alarming from Lorenzo how far off the pace he was there behind behind Siren who was riding a MotoGP bike for the first time ever. Um, yeah, alarming from Lorenzo on that one, um, and it's again it, it is showing the inconsistency of the field and you know. Lorenzo is not the finished article. He's not Yamaha Lorenzo on this bike just yet. And I think we may have to pump the brakes on his hype train a little bit um, going into the season because it's it's it's, it's not quite um, what I think people were hoping for out of Lorenzo, especially after how great his his, his first test was in, in, at Sepang. Yeah, he was 10th on each of the first two days, Lorenzo, um, which was, uh, in fairness, only around a half second off the outright pace. But as I mentioned, that's where half second puts you nowadays um, in MotoGP so uh, still a bit of work to do as I mentioned there are still places Lorenzo goes to and he showed late last season they can still go to a certain circuit if it doesn't work Lorenzo is nowhere um, on that Ducati uh, he is still though the second favourite for the World Championship um, if you uh, depending on which bookmakers you check in so they're still not losing faith in him um, just yet but a bit nope. of work to do um, for Jorge Lorenzo and as I mentioned Qatar test well underway uh, and we'll cover that in next week's show 
Uh, but Maverick Vinales, quickest on day one of that test, which took place today, today being March the 1st. Um, but there's a lot of MotoGP news to get through before we go, so we're going to cover all of that um, before the end of this show. Um, starting with uh, news that was kind of likely or almost certain to be confirmed straight on the heels of the Thailand test. Siren, who we mentioned earlier on, rode the Tech 3 Yamaha for the first time. Um, and that was announced prior to the test that he was going to ride for them at the test. They hadn't confirmed him as a race rider for the season, um, but hot on the heels of that first test rate, they have confirmed Siren, which uh, I think we discussed this previously. It's about as good as Tech 3 could have hoped for in the circumstances, and good news for the sport and for Malaysia, with the Malaysian Grand Prix already a sellout in previous years, to have one of their own on a competitive bike in MotoGP. They're going to be fighting people to get through the doors at this rate. Um, that's a fantastic hire from Tech 3. I mean, given the circumstances, that was probably about as good as they could have realistically hope, hoped for. Um, like a siren who's had who had multiple podiums last season, you know, was a, a top eight guy in Moto2, everybody else being tied up in contracts. I think that is about as good as they could have hoped for. Um, so, and Siren, it looks like he's, he's adapted very well. Clearly, Hervé Pontreau was impressed to, you know, to say, yep, yeah, we're going to go with him for the whole season. Absolutely. I think the right decision. I mean, why not at that point? Um, so, for me, yeah, I think it was, I think that was a very smart move. And again, I think that's a great hire. I think, I think the marketing in that. Especially for races that are in, you know, in that in Southeast Asia, like like Thailand coming up, and obviously Sepang as well. Um, there's a there's a lot to like about that move, and I think Siren's a good rider, and I think he he will adapt to it very well indeed. Mm. Um, Tech three have also been in the news since that decision was uh, announced um, for a very different reason, and I think this was kind of in the offering in future years, Dre. But I don't think we expected this news to come quite this early. Tech three and Yamaha are going to split at the end of 2018. <laughs> Um, it's been a very successful partnership for them over a, over a decade in, in MotoGP. They've they've had multiple podiums with the likes of Cal Crutchlow, Andre Vizioso, Bradley Smith, of course, more recently than that, and Joan Zarco last year. Um, they've had a very successful run, um, but they're deciding to split at the end of 2018. And my curi- curiosity at the start of this was who's necessitated or who's instigated this decision to split? Um, did Poncharal make this decision based on what he expects to come in the future with the Sky VR46 MotoGP team or did Yamaha decide that they wanted to go in another direction I think it's more likely Poncharal and Tech 3 have initiated this um, but mm. did it shock you when it was announced? It did it did, did shock me and it's funny because David Emmett said on Twitter about 10 minutes ago Tech 3 did initiate the move uh, to yeah. break off from Yamaha so yeah you, your your inclination was spot on that Poncharol was the one that pulled the pin on this. And it strikes me uh, a lot of jumping before he was pushed. Yes. Um, he quoted, the quote at the time was he was made an offer that he couldn't refuse and I wonder what the context behind that was. Was it financial? Was it more reassurances about what was coming? Um, was it, you know, quote-unquote, more factory support? I mean, it's not confirmed yet, but have, there's heavy rumours doing the rounds at KTM. Yeah, presumably well, he means an offer from another manufacturer there. Exactly. So I, I think like, I think like, it's not been confirmed yet, but everyone and their mother are saying that KTM will have Tech 3 as a satellite team in 2019. Essentially on um, equal machinery to their factory team. Yeah, which, again, I think is just mutually beneficial for all parties involved. KTM can spread some of their talent out, which is friggin' stacked yeah. for what it's worth. You know, we've only got Miguel Oliveira and Brad Binder in our Moto2 team. No yeah. big deal, it's right? Sam Lowe's on, uh, on KTM as well in Moto2. 
Yeah, exactly. Sanlo's is there as well on the KTM Moto Two. Um, so they've got they've got they've got options. They've got avenues. Um, Hervé Pontrol will get the factory support he's desperately craved with his team for quite some time. He's he's made public his frustrations often at Yamaha not being able to supply both his riders at the same time with factory parts, and that's caused dissension between riders like Bradley Smith and Paul Spagaro in the past. Um, and he's now got a much better chance of keeping Johan Zarco there now as well, who there was many rumours about people going in for him in the off-season. Obviously not yet. He's, his deal expires at the end of this coming season, but the, the talk was heavy that KTM wanted to build around Johan Zarco, and they may be able to do that now, not necessarily about putting him on the factory bike. So, you know, they can keep him in-house, so to speak. So... If, if Yamaha doesn't come knocking for Johan Zarco, which is even less likely now, given the news that dropped today from Valentino's camp, more on that, in a uh, more on that very shortly, um, it's looking like Johan Zarco could be staying in-house, which is you know a great... Key, that might be the most talented rider Tech 3 has ever had in that team. Um, but by the way it's going, Zarco looks to be getting better and better by the weekend. It's terrifying how fast he's learning here. Um, so the way it's going, um, yeah, it's it's looking very promising indeed um, for those guys involved going forward. Yeah, uh, it's, it's interesting. Sam Lowe's already said that he's, there's an option in his contract for him to perhaps move up to MotoGP next year. Um, presumably mm. an option that KTM possesses. He, he, reading between the lines, I might be adding two and two together and making 22, but it almost strikes me as if any rider who's on a KTM in Moto2, KTM have an option on them to move them up into MotoGP if they want it. Um, Why the hell not? Which, you know, it's a very luxurious and strong position for them to be in. Um, moving forward with Oliveira and Binder waiting in the wings. Um, but yeah, it does make it interesting. So I was thinking that when this news was announced, does this make it more or less likely that Tech 3 are going to hang on to Joan Zarco post-2018? And you probably have to say it makes it more likely now because um, as Dre kind of hinted, it looks like there isn't going to be a factory Yamaha spot opening up um, in any of the next two years. Um, so Zarco, if he wants to find a factory seat, he's going to have to look elsewhere and KTM might well provide him with it. Um, in 2019 so uh, yeah that's going to be a story well worth following as the year goes on as KTM essentially are looking at a four bike operation um, for 2019 as their plot for world domination gathers pace um, right. so we'll, we'll, look for, we'll look at that uh, in future shows um, another rider who's um, or another piece of the 2019 puzzle that's been confirmed was confirmed by Primark Ducati last week and this is another exciting piece of news. Uh, Francesco Bagnaia is already confirmed as a Premier Ducati MotoGP rider for the next two years, 2019 and 2020. No great surprise, I think, Dre, to any of us that he's going to be moving up to MotoGP. I think he's a rider that a lot of teams and factories have had their eyes on for a number of years now. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, a fascinating story. A rider who I think is going to get on very, very well in MotoGP and could easily move up as a Moto2 champion. Yeah, I mean, what gave it away for me was when Nuno Petrucci said three weeks ago that uh, this was going to be his last year at Pramac, whatever happened. Mm. Um, so that was kind of a hint. Well, if he's going, who are they going to get to replace him? And yeah, Pekka Banyai was an absolute no-brainer. Like many of the factory team bosses were apparently, um, you know, going gooey-eyed over the prospect of Banyai around uh, early last season. And again, he's been very, very fast in Moto2 so far far multiple podiums again a regular fixture in the top six or seven um as a rookie will only get better um, this year could wouldn't be a surprise if he's a challenger for the title next season at all 
Um, and now he can relax a little bit knowing he's got his MotoGP future secure with Pramac going forward. I mean, that could be a formidable team next year on 2019 with, with Jack Miller and, and Pecco Bagnaia in there as Miller has looked, you know, very quick on that Ducati very quickly um, from his Honda experience. So um, there is a lot to look forward to here with this team, definitely. Um, so... Yeah, like Pekka Banyaya is a great pull for Pramac. I, I, I can't think of an obvious name that would be, would be better to sign for a team in that position. That could be yeah. a hell of a coup for him. Yeah, and uh, I think it's a good use for, for Banyaya. It just allows him just to focus on his season and try and winning the Moto2 title with, with Sky VL46 because we have seen in recent years with uh, the likes of Zarco and Rins and Sam Lowe's in Moto2 where it, you can't necessarily say it's helped them in, in Moto2 having their MotoGP future up in the air knowing where they're going to be next year as they're trying to sort their futures out um it, right. it can act as a distraction so for banyaya he doesn't have that distraction now um in 2018 his future is already signed sealed and delivered he knows where he's going for 2019 and um yeah he's gonna be a rider well worth watching already an outstanding rookie in moto 2 not an easy class to get to grips with as a rookie so with years experience he could be a real weapon um in, in 2019 um more news uh, surrounding contracts and another rider who's secured his future for the next two years. Not that I think he was going to struggle to find a contract somewhere. It's Mark Marquez, um, who... What? Who, who, <laughs> yeah, I think there were a few teams that have been queuing up if this one hadn't been signed. Um, but he was last seen um, dancing the night away on Indonesian TV um, last week, which was very entertaining indeed. Um, but he signed a two-year contract now with Honda, which will keep him at Honda until the end of the 2020 season. Um, which isn't necessarily a surprise, but it does put to bed any of those lingering rumours that perhaps KTM are going to try and prize him away. Like, sorry, KTM, you can you can cancel the dumpster truck of money. It's not happening yet. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm not surprised by that one entirely, really. It's a no-brainer, especially given that uh, it's looking like Honda's had their best off-season in quite some time. Um, like, we, we, they've looked very comfortable out there in testing. They've looked fast all the way. Marquez getting all the peer opportunities in the world, including dancing in Indonesia, because why not? <laughs> well, when you're the world champion. Um, um, but yeah, a complete no-brainer. You've won four world titles with that team already um, in the last five years. He, he's able to make it work better than anyone on this planet can with that Honda at the moment. It's a no-brainer. Stick around for another two years and see if and see what opens up in a couple of years' time, maybe. But um, yeah, like he's not bored of winning yet. Let's put it that way. No, but what's scary is that when uh, when those opportunities may open up at the end of 2020. He could be a nine-time world champion by then. Um, which Back you, the truck which is, which is scary. Um, not beyond the realms of possibility either, the way he's going. Um, it's going to take an incredible performance to stop him from winning the next three world titles, the form he and Honda are in at the moment. Um, one last story to bring you. Well, two stories to bring you, because as, as Dre mentioned, one of them is kind of broken as we've been recording this. Um, but we'll stick to the running order and talk about Valentino Rossi in a second. BT Sport have been in the news. Um, kind of ironic that we last mentioned Valentino Rossi because it's all they blinking well talk about. Um, and they're going to be talking about him for the next uh, three years until the end of 2021 because they have signed a new contract, a new three-year extension, um, because their current contract was due to expire at the end of this year, um, to be the exclusive live broadcaster of MotoGP in the UK. Um, now, when we first broke this news, um, there was a bit of sort of backhanded sort of, yeah, great news about it. But um, when we look at it in the cold light of day, Dre, um, for a as much as we'd love to see MotoGP as a as a live sport on free to air TV, um, 
Junior Ryder, amongst many, has been very keen to make the point on social media that that's just not the way of the world nowadays, I'm afraid. Um, Indeed. How many key how many key sports in the world can you talk about that has complete universal uh, free-to-air broadcasting um, around the world? It doesn't happen in any sport nowadays. Um, and MotoGP, um, around the time of the credit crunch, when grid numbers were falling, they had a decision to make whether they were going to go for numbers of eyes on the products and live TV and free-to-air, or take the broadcasting revenue and the position they were in they had to take the broadcasting money um because they needed the money um and that's what brought bt sport in and we're going to be staying with bt sport until the end of 2021 and in terms of sheer minutes and um hours and just sheer coverage of the sport i think this is as good a deal as british motor gp viewers were going to get weren't they exactly i mean people a lot of people on on realistically on... Yeah, exactly. A lot of people on Twitter were fighting with Julian Ryder about this, saying, "Oh, bring back Eurosport," and I'm like, "Guys, you have to pay for Eurosport too." Yeah. Like and BBC, I'm not going to show it at all unless they'll just put it on the red button again. Yeah, I know that. Um, <laughs> um, so, like, I I know that essentially, um, you know, you're paying on top of it for BT Sport in most cases because you know Sky is not cheap. I'm not. I'm not saying that it isn't. It isn't. It is expensive. Take it from me, as a paying customer. But um, it's like they have done wonders for MotoGP coverage, getting every single session, getting you know pre pre race, post race coverage, getting studio shows in the past, which I've been to luckily enough as well. Podcasts uh, as well. Just- podcast it, it they, they tick every box of the media circle they are their crew is absolutely stacked and guys like neil hodson and gavin emmett i think are some of the best in the business um they they do a tremendous job and like bt sport give a shit and that's something that Eurosport didn't really do towards the end of its run and i know people will look at it fondly because the commentary coverage was so good with movie with moody Ryder and, and Spalders and obviously Randy Mamola as well in, 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 in the earlier years but like BT Sport has done an incredible job with covering the sport I mean I don't necessarily agree with all their creative decisions I, I don't I don't believe it should be the Valentino Rossi network for what it's worth but it, you know they, they know where the bread is by and you know I have to respect that <laughs> but um, I'm also willing to call a spade a spade here and say that they, they, overall their coverage is a net positive for MotoGP as a sport, especially in this country. And if, you know, unfortunately the world we live in, in, in like I could go into this for minutes on end, but the way we watch sports is changing in this country, no matter which way you slice it. It's not a matter of, you know, people like sports being, you know, designated being on free to air TV. It's it's like these big networks are going to monopolize whatever they can get and, going forward. And the negative now, reaction know? to this as well. I mean, help me out here, Dre. I mean, you like me watch a lot of sports. Is this just a motorsport mm. thing? Because the negativity towards it. Because I look at darts, for instance, a sport that you and I both adore watching. Yes, uh, there's a, we have a handful of tournaments a year on ITV4, but by and large, it's all on Sky. Um, you mm-hmm. look at. I mean, I, I, a very good friend of mine watches UFC. That's all live on BT Sport. Um, yes. We have, I mean, cricket has had a bit of it in recent years. All England Test cricket is on either Sky or in the Ashes. It was BT Sport, and I don't necessarily see as many people following those sports who are so constantly negative about a lack of free-to-air coverage um, right. as they are with motorsport. I mean, I mean, I know we spend a lot of our more of our time talking with motorsport followers than perhaps we do of other sports, but it does strike me as if 
motorsport fans seem as if they, I don't know, they feel as if they're entitled to live free-to-air coverage, when in the case of motorcycle racing, it is still a niche. Exactly. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, motorsport is not a football. It is not a tennis. It is not one of those mainstream sports. It's not going to get 10 million people watching every weekend. It, it's not the Premier League, and you're absolutely right. I mean, we are. I, I am a sports nerd. I, I tend. I'm a bit of a tech nerd as well, so I always keep an eye on the landscape and seeing what's changes. But the patterns I'm seeing is that motorsport has got a level of entitlement to it that other sports fans don't have, and I think that's mostly down to the fact that we were very spoiled to have had Formula One on free-to-air TV. Pretty much from, what was it, 94 on ITV, pretty much all the way through to 2008. And again, you had BBC get it from 09 to 2013. And even when they gave up half their rights, we had it live until 2016 when Channel 4 took over. But we've been spoiled to have Motorsport's number one series on free-to-air TV for for basically two decades. That like and as I said, the sports world is changing now. We're consuming our media in different ways, and guys don't have the disposable income that we had twenty years ago. And as I mentioned, so, uh, sports are now so much more reliant on broadcasters' revenue than they perhaps ever were in the past. Exactly. So, like, and as I said, with the risk of networks like Netflix and Amazon that are starting to dip their toes in the water for live sport. I mean, Amazon have already got some of the tennis going on over there and I, I i think there's there's rumors going around they may have bought some premier league games for a couple of years time as well um so keep half an eye on that but as the way as like these bigger streaming services which by the way most major sports now have like yeah. they, they, shout they out to f1 have. by the way for finally bringing out their own video pass well done guys welcome to 2012 but um <laughs> like i said like with every with like a lot more sports now having now having their own in-house streaming service as well they're trying to take whatever revenue they can get on here and as i mentioned if you're a big sports network you're going to monopolize whatever you can get which is why so many people were probably the last time i saw this many people pissed off was when bt sport got the champions league yeah. um and basically got the monopoly on european football and people were miffed but then you got to realize if you want to see the football that bad, you'll pay the money to go watch it. Like, like it's that's how the game has always been, and that is what big networks like ITV, Sky, the BBC—that's what they're going to do. They're going to try and monopolize whatever they can can, and try and know they'll try and force you to, to pay the money to watch it because they know that sports fans crave live sport, and you know there's always going to be money in that. It's the last bastion of television, so you know. That that's the game these days, unfortunately. And uh, MotoGP, to confirm, <laughs> will be remaining live on BT Sport, exclusively live on BT Sport, um, until the end of 2021. Um, now, as I mentioned, one more piece of news is kind of broken as we've been recording this. We've kind of dropped lucky on this um, in, in the fact that this has come out basically post-day one of the Qatar test, and it's come from Valentino Rossi, um, who has been speaking after um, the first day where he finished seventh quickest, but the stories aren't about his day's testing. Um, he was asked about Tech 3 and Yamaha's split um, that we discussed a moment ago um, from 2019 onwards. Um, and he said, I didn't expect Poncheral to leave Yamaha. We thought about it, and it would have been a great opportunity, i.e. to bring Sky VR46 into MotoGP, but in the next two years, we will not make a MotoGP team with Yamaha. And the reason he says is, I'll probably race for the next two years. So hopefully we'll talk about the team later when I stop, but not in 2019 or 2020. Upshot of that is, Dre, for the first time publicly, Rossi is pretty much concerned he's staying around for another two years. Yeah, that was 
you know, that was basically him more or less confirming he signed the two-year extension. Um, looks like he's going to be around way past the age He'll of 40. He'll be riding MotoGP at the age of 41. That's ridiculous. That's that's un- that's obscene. That's unheard of. Um, and as I said, like Valentino Rossi is still competitive. He can still win multiple races a year. He still will make all the marketing money yeah, on bright yellow. Reason all those broadcasters pay that money. Yeah, he's still he's still the money shot. He's like Marquez is still not that guy yet. I don't know if he'll ever be that guy because Valentino Rossi is a god, and you know he is the media's best friend. He sell he puts asses in the seats. There is a sea of yellow at every Grand Prix we go to purely because of Valentino Rossi, and he's still good enough to be in the mix for titles. So why would he retire now? Why not? Why he's, he's is clearly as motivated as ever to try and win titles. He is still clearly an elite alien level rider in the class. And he still finds a way of captivating this audience. Like nobody else can in MotoGP. Um, so if you're in that scenario, why the hell wouldn't you keep, keep going? So um, yeah, it makes total sense for me. Two more years of Valentino, everybody. Why not? Yeah, two more years of Rossi and Vinales at Yamaha. Two more years of Marcus at Honda. Um, not a lot appears to be changing at the moment. Um, in the in, but silly season, in, Lewis. Yeah. Silly season. Yeah, so silly. It's happening a year early. Um, but uh, but yeah, well, that, that's the state of MotoGP at the moment, and it ties in quite nicely, I think, that with Valentino Rossi, given that um, the talk now is ramping up of a Sky VR46 team moving into MotoGP now that they're in Moto2, and now that some of the VR46 Academy pro- um, prospects and um, products are in MotoGP, like Morbidelli and next year with Banyaya. Um, and mm-hmm. at the moment, the current deal for MotoGP with the satellite teams it runs into the end of 2020. Um, which is basically where we have 24 bikes on the grid split amongst a certain number of teams. Um, And if any manufacturer wants to bring extra bikes onto the grid, they must join forces with an existing team first. Um, And the grid numbers are capped at 24, which is what we have for this year. Um, Mm -hmm. Now that ends at the end of 2020, which means potentially from 2021 onwards, there could be a a provision where MotoGP extends that number and basically (laughs) allows more bikes to enter the grid, more than 24. Mm -hmm. Which basically might be exactly the moment where Valentino Rossi retires and has the option of now bringing in a VR46 team to MotoGP. Well, true, but it's like Lorenzo Esperalto always said that he would be willing to bend that rule to get Valentino Rossi's team on the grid regardless of a grid limit. So, like, like Dorna knows just how important it is that Valentino Rossi remains a part of the sport, um, even after he may or may not retire. So, you know... Like call a spade a spade. Like like I, if if Rossi wanted a team early, MotoGP would help him find a way in. I am dead certain on that. Um, if they gave him enough of a, of a heads up, at least in my, again, at least in my humble opinion, anyway. Um, so yeah, we'll see how it plays out. But um, I think 2021 seems like the ideal year for this to actually happen. Yeah, and it does beg the question as well. We we kind of mentioned earlier on who will run the Yamahas, the satellite Yamahas in MotoGP in the next two years. Um, there is a theory um, in MCN that perhaps Yamaha might not even bother running two satellite bikes um, for the next two years without Tech 3. They might just run their two factory bikes, um, kind of like a Prilia do, and that being it. Um, so mm. we'll see how that unfolds over the next two years. But yeah, Valentino Rossi looks... Um, and by the time we speak to you next on episode 49, he might well have announced it, um, that he's staying around in MotoGP for the next two years. 
Um, that brings us to the end of episode 48, reviewing the first weekend of the World Superbike season in Phillip Island. As I mentioned, next week, episode 49 uh, will be our MotoGP season preview, as we will run you through every single team that will be on the grid um, next season from the factory teams of uh, Ducati, Yamaha, Honda, Aprilia, KTM and Suzuki, the satellite teams of Tech3, of the Angel Nieto team, as they are now called, previously Aspar, now Angel Nieto, um, and the rookies that are into MotoGP this season, which now has been increased by one with the addition of Hafiz Sayarin alongside the likes of Morbidelli, Luti and Nakagami, and indeed Xavier Simeon. It's an exciting MotoGP season coming up. Um, it's a sport that's never been in as rude health as it is now, uh, and we can't wait to um, look ahead um, to the season coming up next week here on Bike Live and talk you through it all as the season goes on um, throughout the year. Um, before now and then though likely before we speak to you next year on Bike Live a brand new episode of Motorsport 101 will have gone live and um, in case you um, weren't quite paying attention at the start of the show it's going to be an IndyCar season preview coming next week Dre Yes, indeed, sir. Um, I'm in the car season preview. Their season gets underway. It's in Petersburg next weekend. Expect special guests. Expect many jokes about Joseph Newgarden defending the title. Expect references to the Pensy Games, which is coming up soon as well, which will always be a good laugh on the internet as well. And we will be breaking down the season going forward a lot. It's a very, very different grid this year. A lot of teams running smaller cars. Penske downsizing from four to three. Chip Ganassi's downsizing from four to two. But Scott Dixon's still most likely going to be one of the title favorites going forward. Um, Andretti with their fleet of cars. Foyt with a river repackaged team. And probably talking about Condonelli being on the amazing race. Because why the hell not? Um, so yeah, an IndyCar season preview. And most likely we'll be talking about um, Formula E's race in Mexico as well and probably talking about that Catalonia test a little bit as well expect two episodes like knowing them well how, how we're recording at the moment and thinking of that set list alone i'm gonna guess it's gonna be two episodes so stay tuned for more details on that early next week but if i had to if i had to go out there and put must put some money on it i'd probably take the one to three option that there's two episodes next week so um stay forward to some look forward to some of that and then stay tuned on our social media for more details on that episodes 124 and probably 125 <laughs> will be out next week yeah we look forward to that next week uh, and also to add to that it's almost certainly going to be the uh, return of weekly motorsport 101s as well um yes from definitely next week onwards in the form of the one season preview likely to follow the week after um, so if you like your podcasts from uh, from us a lot, um, you're going to be well catered for from this point onwards uh, with weekly shows from both ourselves um, and from Motorsport 101. Um, places you can find us, um, as Dre mentioned, for all the information on uh, our weekly shows, when they're going to be all going online and how many of them they're going to be. Um, Facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. On Twitter, we are at Motorsport underscore 101. Um, on YouTube, it's youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. And our website is motorsport101.net. If you want to earn yourself early access to each of our weekly shows, um, but then back us at the $5 level on Patreon. By doing that, um, you need to go to patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. My thanks to Andre Harrison um, for joining me this week. We'll be back next week to preview the MotoGP season, but that brings us to the end of the first round of the World Superbike season. And if the first round is anything to go by, this year might be a little bit different. We look forward to following it as it goes on, starting in Thailand in a month's time. We look forward to your company uh, next week for our MotoGP preview. From uh, myself and Andre Harrison, it's bye-bye.